mate, Luke Ford here. I'm back with Duvid. It's my first uh, live stream in three weeks. I've just taken three weeks off from live streaming. Haven't thought about live streaming. Haven't been making notes. Haven't felt a yearning to live stream. But uh, wanted to set up a conversation with Duvid about a book that I think we both enjoyed. It's called Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And I particularly wanted to talk about this with Duvid because he does not seem to take a great deal of pleasure in humor. And so I thought it'd be fun to break down with Duvid the particular elements of what makes something funny. And perhaps the shortest definition is that, that which is funny is a surprising violation of expectations. So, uh, Duvid, am I, am I right? Do you not tend to be a person who gets uh, much pleasure from humor? Yeah, generally, I guess I'm considered anti-humor, um, and I've taken the approach that humor is largely just a sign of bad character, and it was somewhat from my yeshiva education that I went to uh, we'll call like anti-humoristic uh, rabbis that, I mean, it's in the Talmud that there were you know schools of uh, anti-humor and humor. The Talmud is a story of a rabbi that opened up his sermons with a joke, but also of uh, uh, anti-humors or biblical perspective. I've, I've done a lot of research into uh, humor. I mean, there's the theory of humor, uh, the the main school theory of humor, like the uh, disrupted expectation. Um, however, uh, there's also uh, the uh, the more negative approaches to humor that you know that humor is some sort of sublimation of animalistic drives. And, uh, you know, so I'm less into politics. I, I read that book. I skimmed through it twice, kind of sped read, because it wasn't uh, interesting enough for me to uh, deeply read. My mom's a big John Stewart fan. Like, you know, she's retired. She watched, like, Trevor Noah and that type of information. And, uh, you know, I'd say for my contemporaries, like, you know, I so, said, like, definitely humor. And ironically, I'm considered quite funny. Like, as a kid, I was almost considered, like, a comedian class clown. Um, and, uh, yeah, I used to get into teasing matches. In fact, tomorrow night I might go down into Detroit, uh, a new event for chess, which is called smack talk, which is kind of like trash talk, mostly African-Americans, um, related to like rap battles, but you know, like the chess, like Elliot's kind of like that when you play chess, it becomes like a teasing match. And, uh, so I've always been considered funny, but I very rarely rap. A laugh, and that was a natural dispensation of mine. Even as a child, I almost never laughed. One of the qualities of humor is that it's essentially a type of riddle. And for people to enjoy humor, they have to be prepared to do some work to engage in, in play with words. So I, I take it this is not a type of work that you enjoy doing. Um, well, I mean, if I wanted to be arrogant, maybe I could say it's, you know, like the tears of the clown. So if I'm high IQ, that uh, the work is actually quite easy to me in the sense that I don't actually, uh, you know, like what you know, like the work I could do more quickly than other people. And I could understand why people think it's funny and therefore it's not funny to me because I don't have to put that much labor into it. Okay. And so... Do you think that she was onto something in her basic uh, thesis that people on the left more enjoy satire, which is poking fun primarily at institutions, 
and people on the right primarily enjoy humor that which puts down out groups yeah, I, mean, I, I the the book had a lot of interesting conclusions, and I actually on my week in review, I read through your whole synopsis of quotes. It took me maybe even like 30, 45 minutes. I read through uh, your whole uh, you know quotes from the book, and uh, you know, a lot of her insight is pretty good. Uh, although I think she misses the uh, you know, the more basic uh, you know element of lowbrow humor. You know, so she's focusing on highbrow humor. And, you know, I mentioned to you that, like, the most funny things is uh, lowbrow humor. And it's an audience like my mother who likes this highbrow humor. And, I mean, so I don't know if you want to first cover, like, what is lowbrow humor and why is that uh, the most popular form? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Share your thoughts. Oh. Yeah, I mean, so obviously, like, the most popular forms of humor is something, you know, called, like, slap slapstick, uh, Three Stooges type style um and, and direct violence like i saw uh you know today on the you know, jewish uh, israeli papers about uh you know, god forbid the hamas terrorists that uh, that got killed right after sending out a bomb or uh you know they tried to uh you know send out a missile and then uh you know the missile like uh malfunctioned and he got killed or the slipping on a banana peel um which is essentially, and as they like, God forbid, like if you worldstar.com or something like that, uh, the most funny thing in America would like really be like me or you getting beat up. Like, God forbid, God forbid, uh, just theoretically, like if someone played the knockout game on me or you walking down the street and it got clipped on worldstar.com and millions of people watch that, I would guess that like millions of people would think that that's just absolutely hilarious. Um, I mean, right? I guess. I mean, I don't know. Like if you're a highbrow person, you wouldn't laugh at that. But you think like a picture of me or you getting suffering the knockout game, if it was like a a, a dark web clip in in someone showed like, oh, here's Duvid or Luke walking down the street and some guy just out of nowhere, like popped him on the side of the head. They would just be laughing hysterically. Uh, and it goes to the biblical sense of like the main sense of biblical humor. Um, which might correspond with, uh, you know, the ex uh, expectation is humor is specifically related to the downfall of your foe and uh, this messianic uh, concept of the last laugh, you know, when Messiah comes or the righteous have the last laugh uh, because humor is related to the delayed expectation of reward of the righteous and punishment of the wicked. And so it just appears that the righteous are, aren't getting, aren't being rewarded or the wicked are being rewarded and when eventually things revert back to the expectation that the punished that the wicked person eventually gets their punishment that's when the righteous person laughs and in the bible that's the most common use of uh, of humor if that makes sense to you so as you go through life is it an impediment is it an advantage or is it a mix that uh, you're not someone who particularly enjoys humor it's a mix because uh, it makes you abnormal and people suspect abnormalcy and uh, I mean, you could look at that positive or negative. It keeps me out of trouble. You know, it keeps me, you know, like, yeah, I am different. I don't find that funny. And it could kind of like, you know, it's like anti-Semitism or something like that, where, where it's like, you're going to be the, you know, the the spoiler in the room is like, that's not funny. That's just hateful. 
And, you know, to the other people, it's like, oh, okay, don't invite Duvin next time. Or, uh, you know, because uh, I haven't put that, like, the Jew is the designated driver that, uh, you know, generally, like, it's not cool to be Jewish because the Jewish role is, like, kind of like the the moral voice was like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. That's bad behavior. Or you're talking like Stephen James and Brundlefly about Elon Musk philosemitism is that to some extent, like Jews are tattletales where, where it's like, you can't do that. You can't get away with that. And uh, you know, in the extent that like, well, yeah, I'm going to tell on you because like, that's just bad behavior. You shouldn't be able to get away with that. And uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, and if you don't listen, then I'm going to tell on you. And, uh, you know, so someone like Elon Musk might be philo-Semitic like that because, like, you know, like, you know, Jews are snitches and, uh, you know, he runs a bunch of businesses. And if someone isn't doing their work properly or misbehaving, he wants a person who's going to snitch on them or report to them. And, uh, you know, so humor could somewhat be representative of that, uh, you know, like, uh, you don't have a place with the cool kids because the cool kids are cool because they engage in um bad behavior and if you don't laugh it's an indication that like you know you're going to be a tattletale that you're not down with the uh, you know the bad behavior so that's like my biblical rabbinic approach to being anti-humor and i even remember of uh you know being yelled at i had certain very strict rabbis that forbid laughing and they're like you laugh one more time you're out of here it was just a sign like you're not serious you can't you're not going to be in the high talmud class like this guy laughs and like, you know, it's just a sign that the person's not serious. He's not cut out for, uh, you know, intensive Talmudic study. So are there any comics or satirists who you regularly enjoy? No, I mean, I sell comics um, in various things, but uh, no, I mean, generally I'm renounced and I see that if I enjoy that, I, I would try to examine that and see it's a source of my bad character that, uh, you know, so like if I did enjoy that, um, you know, it was like superheroes or comic or Seinfeld, even like you'd say, well, I have to examine and say, what's wrong with me that I'm enjoying it. So because I've had that attitude since my um, late teens, when I went to Israel and went to yeshiva and, and uh, you know, came across these ideas, whatever natural inclination towards humor, I've purposely weeded out of my personality. So like if you said something and I found it funny then I would examine myself and say, like, well, what character defect is inside of me that I found that funny? And, uh, you know, like, I learned that among, like, the Musser school of uh, you know, Judaism in, uh, in Israel. Is this part of your overall ascetic approach to life where you tend to be highly suspicious of pleasure and joy in general? Um, well, if you want to put it in a pejorative, like, I, I would just put it in, a typical, you know, I would put it just as my Jewish identity, but obviously like Jewish identity is disputed in this concept that uh, there's a struggle between the animalistic nature and the spiritual nature and humor is a sign of um, the animalistic nature. And so like, if you're laughing, that's a sign that the animalistic nature is winning and so you know, like i would connect it to my struggle to be righteous and to overcome my baser desires and also but i didn't mention like the you know the you know the lowbrow humor 
it's like sex, like obviously associated violence and sex. So if you think like most comedians, like when I was a kid, like I actually liked Andrew Dice Clay. I mean, like uh, early, I heard from my brother that was like, you know, right when I hit puberty and, uh, you know, something like, but you think like, yeah, like uh, the most funny things from the most popular comics are, are you know, mostly racism, sex and violence. So, I mean, when we talk about the book, we're talking about highbrow humor. But are you somebody who puts a premium or a great deal of importance on joy and happiness? No, no, not at all. I, I put almost no premium at all on that. And like even to a negative where I put that almost connected to selfishness. Where, where you know, it's like, well, I just want to be happy is uh, a euphemism for saying I just want to be selfish. And sense like, no, there's duty. And, and when you say you just want to be happy, it's a way of skirting the fact that you have a duty and obligation and you don't want to fill your uh, duty and obligation. And the reason you don't want to fill your duty and obligation is because you're selfish. You only care about fulfilling your animal desires. And to say like, no, I mean, this purely comes from Judaism. I had a natural inclination to why I became Hasidic. But like, you know, what I'm telling you now, like this purely comes from my time in yeshiva and uh, hardcore rabbis that uh, you know, openly said this. Now, you've participated a great deal in live streaming over the past six years. Live streaming is a space that tends to be dominated by at least attempts at humor and satire and irony. So what's, what's your experience with that? I think a lot of people who like me find me funny. And, you know, I do, because I was a chess player, and I knew certain personalities that had this self-deprecating form of humor that I've adopted where, you know, I'll just turn into kind of insult myself or, uh, but yeah, my humor is definitely important to live streaming and I've kind of, uh, accepted kind of the role of a comedian to some places where I'll say things that I know are funny, like, uh, on Stephen James, like for example, yeah, I, I was on the stream with uh, um, Adam Green, and you know this guy Yehuda Amsalog, this like uh, I guess like Hasbora agent from Toronto, who's a very popular streamer, and like he bounced me from he came on a stream, and uh, but like you know I was joking around with Adam Green and a few of his counter semites. I was like, you dumb goy. And like, I'll say that. And I know like when I say that, like it's considered pretty funny. And even there's a few hundred people and like Brundlefly or Stephen James, like they're just cracking up. And like, you know, so Stephen James, I was just kind of like bashing him. I was like, you stupid goy. And, you know, like to some extent, like I think I'm being serious when I say that, but to the average person listening, it's just, it's just humorous. But to the Hasbortigas guy, you I'm so like, he was just like, he just like, you know, bounced me and started bashing me. He's like, He's like, you can't do that. Like, what you talks like that? Even though he has his own version of humor, but like for him, that would be past the acceptable, you know, it's like you're uh, going into anti-Semitic uh, stereotropes of, uh, you know, saying like no actual Jew calls uh, going dumb goy. So here you are pretending like you're a Jew saying dumb goy and just increasing anti-Semitism. So, I mean, from that level, um, you know, there's the question of is humor bad character and have I fallen into, you know, from streaming danger, this e-personality in certain cases of, um, you know, bad character playing to the crowd. 
Okay. And do you do you get humor? Humor is always, always a type of riddle. Do you, do you get it or do you get it and choose not to enjoy it or do you miss it? I think I get humor and, and I I think I, I I basically just look at it as a sign of bad character or lack of intelligence why people laugh. And so I get why you're laughing and the reason why you're laughing is because you haven't refined your bad character. And so, I mean, which also becomes humorous. So like I used to be on House of Comments with Ralph and we actually had like tens of hours of these debates on humor, Church of Entropy. And I'm known for arguing against humor and I've done the research from like Aristotle and uh, um, I mean, even the word humor itself, like the etymology, it's uh, negative. Humor is considered uh, like the four humors. So you're out of balance. The reason you're laughing is because you're out of balance. So, I mean, just the etymology of the word itself implies that uh, you're laughing because something's wrong with you. So I would say like, yeah, I get humor and I psychoanalyze the person to, you know, basically try to understand their character defects by why they find that funny. So many people ha have have trouble because they're always trying to be funny. I mean, I, I have trouble because I'm often trying to be funny. And it's particularly annoying for other people who are in a more serious mood, right? So when you're trying to be funny, you're, you're inviting people to, to play with you. And usually your superiors at work don't want to play, and a lot of other people who have you know, a great deal of responsibilities don't want to play. But it's essentially a playful invitation. So how do you find people respond to you when you make it clear that you don't want to play in this way? Um, just disassociation and some, you know, some people like, oh, you're so serious, you know, like, uh, you know, so it's like, they're not that serious. I'm that serious. You know, it's like, I don't like wasting time. So we just don't associate. Um, I noticed a certain other thing you probably noticed this also because a lot of rabbis are like amateur stand up comedians, especially liberal rabbis. And like conservative rabbis, reform rabbis, you know, they'll get up to give a sermon and it's kind of like a comedy routine um, because they're not serious people. So if you're uh, from a Haredi approach, um, you know, you're fire and brimstone. You're like, there is a God, there is punishment, and you will go to hell for that. That is not funny. And I mean, maybe in L.A., are there any rabbis like that? Fire and brimstone, not that I'm aware of, but generally speaking, the more religious the Jew, the smaller the role that humor plays in his life. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say like in Israel or Brooklyn, like half of rabbis were like that. Not like half of Hasidic rabbis were like that, where just like, you're, like, you're a heretic. There is a God. That's a sin, and you will be punished. End of story. Um, you know, So like in L.A., you know, saying people don't really believe that. They don't believe that there's a God and there's a, you know, you're going to be punished for that. And, uh, and therefore, like when the rabbi gets up, you know, it turns into like, you know, what does it mean that the rabbi is getting up in front of the crowd as a rabbi, you know, saying the rabbi is a joke and therefore his sermon's a joke and he turns it into stand-up comedy. And the reason why it's stand-up comedy, because they're talking about, you know, cultural things that make the person uncomfortable so if you look, you know, from the pure theological level, uh, it's forbidden to fear man. 
because the fear of God should completely overrule all your other fears. So if you fear man, it's a sign that you're a heretic because you should have feared God so much that you don't fear man. And if you're you're among unserious Jews, they don't really fear God. They fear man. And that's why um, the uh, humor becomes common. That's why Jews are especially funny because it's like, you don't really buy this crap, do you, Luke? You don't really believe that Judaism's actually true. And so if the rabbi doesn't believe that Judaism's actually true, and he's the one giving the sermon, it becomes a comedy act, and a lot of rabbis embrace that. So, like, uh, you know, I, I would say even, I remember liberal rabbis were like, 25% of their routine is basically a comedy act, and the congregation's, uh, you know, laughing, and, uh, you know, I would just sit there and, and be like, no, I mean, that's not funny. I understand why you think that's funny, but you think it's funny because, uh, you know, bad character because you're not serious. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that. Like, I'm saying that to you because we're talking about the subject. I say that occasionally streaming. Um, I've never publicly said it. I've never, like, spoken up unless someone asked me. So, you know, I'm not sitting here like a party pooper, you know, saying, like, uh, I'm a libertarian. People have free will to, you know, but that's... Uh, that's my understanding to say it comes straight from Judaism. It comes straight from the rabbis that uh, taught me. And uh, that's why I fell into probably Haredi Judaism because I did natural inclination, uh, behavioral pattern that matched uh, Haredi culture that we've talked about in the past. And, and you're also, you're not a particularly playful person, even outside of humor, like the whole, you know, ethos of play is not one that I see in your life. Yeah, so to come to a society where it was just seen as bad character. So generally, you know, I was uh, a nerd. I was uh, unpopular. And then I found Haredi Hasidic popular, uh, you know, culture where it fitted my personality. And, uh, you know, I became somewhat normal and, uh, you know, or, you know, had natural disposition. Rabbis recruited me. They liked me within certain yeshivas. I was even, you know, from the top students, uh, you know, a lot of rab you know, big rabbis made me their, you know, their right-hand guy for their assistance. Uh, I moved up the rank from the Balchuva yeshivas straight to Yamir yeshiva, going to top classes. A big, in, uh, I remember in Carlin Stolen, um, you know, I was there, the, the, you know, this one, um, you know, semi-relative rabbi from an important family. He said, like, this guy's the most serious guy in our synagogue. And that was considered a compliment, even, you know, to the Hasidim, you were know, saying like, our, you know, we're supposed to be serious like you, but we're, we're not like this Balchuva is way more serious than us. Okay, uh, just a, a side question. How has the murder of Samantha Wall, a synagogue president in Detroit, how has it affected the Detroit Jewish community? Yeah, I'm not in the Jewish quarters to... Uh, no, I, mean, I, I guess it's probably pretty bad, especially you're considering this person that's been arrested on very flimsy evidence. Um, and and then, you know, if it does turn out to just be a random um, black on white crime, a theft gone wrong. And uh, but you know, so basically just no longer talked about. And so if uh, you know, Jews are questioning uh, the return of Jews to Detroit or black Jewish relations, if they're just going to accept 
that uh, it was just a black on uh, a, a crime that went wrong and ended up in a murder. Uh, but it's a very difficult subject because if you're, you know, if you're a Jew who's going back to Detroit, uh, you know, like no right wing Jews are, are going back to Detroit. And uh, and so generally, if you're a Jew who's going back to Detroit, you're bullish on black Jewish relations. And you would be thinking like, no, like it can't be. It can't be that this is just some random black on, uh, you know, white crime where a theft went wrong. Um, but it's almost completely out of the media. No attention at all being given to it. Uh, you know, I've, I spoke up and saying I'm skeptical that uh, that this guy is actually guilty of the crime, which it appears that basically they went through all the footage of the street fit footage and the only guy who was on the street who appears to have you know been breaking into cars although ironically he was wearing um surgical gloves you know probably because he was breaking into cars and didn't want fingerprints or whatever um and all they have is security footage of him like i think a quarter of a mile away they have cell phone data that puts them in the area of her house and then they did a search warrant and they found a tiny bit of blood on his jacket. And so, yeah, I mean, like, how do you get blood on the jacket? But like the skepticism in Detroit, maybe they planted it and it's just a tiny bit of blood. Maybe he saw her body on the street and he's uh, rejecting it. So the only evidence they have is basically there was a guy breaking into cars that could have been in the area. And then they found blood on his jacket. So they're charging him with, uh, uh, with the murder. So it's a, a really bad scenario because he's saying he's innocent. And if that's all the evidence that they have, um, I think probably a lot of people in Detroit are going to be skeptical. And, uh, you know, so the Jews in Detroit would probably, if they're not skeptical, then they have to be questioning, you know, how are they going to live in a majority African-American place where, you know, just even the best of us could just be killed in a random uh, theft. And if you're from the suburbs, then you're you're looking like okay, stupid liberal Jew. Um, you know, you thought you could uh, you know go to Detroit and uh, and this wouldn't happen to you, or to be pushing for um, you know severe punishment and crime, and it's not going to be it's not going to be you know a popular issue of the Black Jewish Alliance for the Jewish community to be pushing for this guy to be uh, you know charged and punished to the fullest extent on weak evidence. Okay, let, let me challenge you about some things you were saying earlier. And here's the broader framework for my challenge. And that is, it's worth asking, why do we resonate with particular teachings or with particular texts? And usually it's because it has some resonance with our own life. So th there are many teachings in Judaism that emphasize the importance of joy. You should serve God with joy. So my, my challenge to you is that if your life had gone in another direction where your life was more filled with joy, that you would more resonate with, with the beauties and godliness and holiness of a joyful, happy life. But because your life has been particularly painful, you therefore resonate with those more dour teachings of Judaism that take a skeptical view of uh, joy, laughter, and happy, happiness. Yeah, I mean, that could be if you want to psychoanalyze me and saying, well, my life wasn't necessarily painful, but in the formative years, you know, where my parents were workaholics and uh, you maybe even questioned whether they should have, you know, should have had me or, uh, you know, in the sense of they were, they were working and, and uh, you know, did they want three children or could they take care? And then they were workaholics. 
and they were also under financial stress in my younger years because they had uh, you went to law school and taken out huge amounts of student loans. So it wasn't until I was about uh, 10 or something that my parents had paid off their student loans or, or got in. Uh, my parents were even in night law school. And uh, and then the demographic changed by third grade. Um, you know, whites were a minority and, you know, I got bullied and was in fights regularly till I went to private school in um, 10th grade. So and after 10th grade, my life was not particularly difficult or sad, uh, but, uh, you know, those formative years up to 14 years old might have uh, given me these dispositions for life, or maybe they were just uh, genetic where I always had these dispositions, even, even uh, you know, from a young kid. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, by the time I was, uh, you know, hit uh, puberty, I already had these dispositions that have basically been with me my whole life. And then maybe, you know, when I became a Hasidic Balchuva, it's like, oh, I found a place for people like me. And, uh, you, you know, and then a tier towards the most extreme uh, Hasidic Orthodox Jews, uh, because like, you know, then I finally found like, oh, like, I'm, I'm not wrong. I'm not different. Um, you know, it's them that's wrong. Like, I was always right. And it was everybody else who was wrong. And now I found, uh, you know, a group or, or a society that... Uh, um, solidified that, uh, you know, that understanding that it wasn't uh, me that was wrong, it was the world that was wrong. How do you, how do you understand those Jewish texts that emphasize the, the holiness of serving God with joy? Um, well, if you say, if it's in the Talmud, there's two schools. So there's the uh, in, in, in Hasidus, so like in, in Hasidus, like, the, you know, there was like, uh, you know, the two brothers, Rev Noi, the Noim Elimelech and the Levi Bredichever. And uh, there was, you know, different groups that have different approaches. In the Talmud, it makes very clear that there were different rabbis with different approaches. I forget the the names, but, you know, the, the one rabbi who would always, you know, come in and ruin the party. And like, even at weddings, he would, you know, come in and remind you, like, the temple's destroyed. Don't be so happy. So, you know, within Jewish texts, it's well understood. There's Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, and, uh, and and there's different approaches. And I fell into like the Beis Shammai type uh, school approaches. Uh, so within that approach, you say, well, yeah, even if you ask in like Beis Shammai, and uh, there's still, you're supposed to serve God with happiness, but that would be more, not lightheartedness. Happiness doesn't mean lightheartedness. It means accepting your duty means like some sort of sublimation understanding of the higher duty and uh, you know so it's not a happiness of being an animal or you're bringing joy to your natural inclination it's the happiness of some form of uh, enlightenment where you've been enlightened and uh, and now understand that uh, you know so to say it's better to be a slave to god than a slave to your passions and you know that uh, frivolous people are happy as slaves to their passions and serving God with happiness means the enlightenment of, uh, that you've came to the realization that, uh, you, you should overcome your baser passions and serve God out of duty. Okay. I'm going to read some excerpts from this terrific book, irony and outrage, the polarized landscape of rage, fear, and laughter in the United States written by a political scientist at a university, Donna Gold, Goldthwaite Young. And here she talks about 
the advantages of using humor, that we use humor and irony to look good to other people, to signal cognitive sophistication, because while not all smart people are funny, all funny people are smart, we use humor to make each other feel good, to make society work more easily, and to tackle difficult subjects without making other people angry. So humor is an advanced form of communication that fulfills social and status needs and gratifications. Being able to successfully use humor is a sign of leadership, authority, and intelligence. It's a way of promoting social cohesion among small groups of people. It allows groups to thrive and work productively together. Humor also creates feelings of happiness called mirth. Feelings often get projected onto the speaker or the person who creates the humor, creating what is known as a halo effect through which audience members feel good about the person who is making them feel good. Any thoughts here on the advantages of successfully using humor? Um, yeah, I could argue with all those points. I'll just mention that you know, I've, I've studied the history of humor and the science of humor, and it's still disputed the origins of humor. But up to about two, 300 years ago, almost all scholars of humor looked at humor as negative. And even the people who used humor were, were just like, well, it's too difficult to, um, you know, be a good person. And so you have to give people a little bit of break or, you know, humor is like the poor people or humor for uh, the unrefined. Um, and, and as I mentioned, even the, the etymology of the word humor is from the four humors that uh, your laughter is a sign of being out of balance. So I, mean, I could accept this terminology uh, but uh, I still would tend to interpret it in nefarious ways. And I think it's, you know, the biblical understanding of the downfall of your foe, where the expectation is, uh, as opposed to some sort of higher level where, well, there's different approaches to life and there's a lot of uncertainty that you want to think that your approach is the right one and the other approach is the wrong one. And you're on the right side of history, so to say. And eventually... Um, you know, justice will be shown that your opponent will have a downfall. And that's the source of this highbrow. Uh, it, it's basically to resolve your own dissonance. You say, well, uh, a lot of these things are zero sum. You have to choose a path in life. You can't do everything. And once you choose a path in life, you're always going to be wondering, what if I chose otherwise the other path? And uh, you know, so it's just a natural tendency uh, rather than just duty, where, where, okay, I chose this path, I'm going to stick with it because I'm a honorable person, even though it's possible that the other path was better, um, you know, to downplay the other path and, uh, and, and to say, well, my path is the best path. And, uh, you know, I think that that's really the source of most of the humor in this book. Okay, let me read a little bit more from this book. Arguments made through jokes elicit less resistance than arguments made through regular serious discourse because of the discounting cue hypothesis. It means that people perceive humor differently from serious discourse, and they apply different rules when processing it. So instead of treating it seriously, people see humor as a joke, in which case scrutinizing the message or challenging the speaker about what the speaker is saying is not appropriate. So the cognitive processing required to make sense of even the most basic joke is quite burdensome. So when the meaning of a joke is implicit, and it forces the listeners to add appropriate information from their long-term and short-term memory just to make sense of it. They are spending so much cognitive energy just getting and appreciating a joke. How are they going to have mental energy left over to scrutinize or challenge whatever argument the joke is suggesting? Any thoughts on that, David? Yeah, so as I mentioned, like the 
there's an animalistic theory of humor because humans are not the only animals that laugh. And, you know, so you have like the laughing hyena, I think rats laugh. And um, if you're taking the sublimation of animalistic desires, so at the pure base of basic humor is saying, um, my body is telling me, God forbid, to, uh, you know, grape, murder, steal. However, I have a higher function that says you can't do that. You can't get away with it. So you know, rather than recognizing, like, of course, my body's natural inclination is for these baser urges and they have to be overcome, that humor is like a reminder that you're actually an animal. And so I mention this all the time, and it, it becomes quite upsetting. And the Talmud kind of clearly says these things and said, like, of course, you want to kill your enemy. Of course, you want to grape that woman. Of course, you want to you know, steal that stuff that you want that's not yours. And you have some higher moral functioning that prevents you from doing what you naturally desire to do. So most humans, they say, are not enlightened, that they don't realize that they have a natural urge to do these things. And that's why humor comes out, because really they do want to do these things. And you know that's why humor is just a purely uh, negative character trait. And it's the animalistic desire. And, and there's also research in humor that really you're speaking underneath your breath. And they've actually tried to record and like slow down or interpret. But like when someone's laughing that they're actually trying to speak and what they're trying to speak is the animalistic basic desires. And that's like, you know, if you take the animals like rats or hyenas, uh, what's funny to them is uh, devouring up and eating another animal alive. And saying, well, that's that's just <laughs> nothing's funnier than that. And you're saying, well, what's the difference when a hyena laughs, uh, a pack of hyena are laughing as they're, uh, you know, torturing and, and eating another live animal, uh, as, as opposed to human laughter? You're saying that human laughter is this deeper intellectual function. It's not the same thing as a pack of hyenas or rats. Well, I mean. I, I think there are many things that we have in common with hyenas and rats, and then there are many things that distinguish us. So we have, you know, higher cognitive processing abilities than hyenas and rats. So yeah, we, we share things in common with animals and we also have our own distinctive realm. Well, well, because this book, I mean, I agree with the fundamental tenet, but I think just to take it to a base, like I'm sure, okay, like God forbid your former expertise one of the most funniest areas of life is sex, right? Isn't that like the basis of probably yes. like 30? Yes, especially my life, yeah. And, and saying, well, why is sex funny? It's because like, you know that really this is what you want to do. Like you could pretend like, you know, you're this uh, refined person who, uh, you know, has these strict moral standards, but like, no, you're an animal and you have these animalistic sexual desires and it's funny to reveal to people that like, yeah, of course you want to do this uh, baser human uh, behavior. And that's why people laugh. Right. We, we only started to get jokes about adultery when adultery became more socially acceptable. Yeah. So just to apply, does what she's saying here about highbrow humor apply equally to lowbrow humor? Well, well, some of it. I mean, even the most low, lowbrow humor still takes a little bit of cognitive processing, and it, there is a, a an effect around a person who who provides humor for others that they're giving other people pleasure and happiness. So it's usually 
a way of socially advancing oneself. Yeah, so it becomes the cognitive process, like a Freudian interpretation of, of like humor, um, where there's a natural processing as the animal is questioning, like you see an attractive woman and the body says, grape, or you see something that's not yours and uh, the body says steal uh, or, you know, the baser functions of, of violence. And that eventually, you know, the child or through cognitive processes, you learn you can't do that and get away with it. Not necessarily because you don't want to. And even the most refined person, um, you know, still has the baser animalistic urges, uh, but they've came up with these higher level of cognitive processing. So lowbrow humor just reveals this, uh, you know, this uh, change of expectations and uh, this analysis of what would happen if you did what you really wanted to do. And, uh, you know, so that level of like, well, I don't actually think like that. So it's revealed, well, maybe you do actually think like that. And then it's funny to just, you know, go through those uh, alternatives in your head versus highbrow humor where you have these very complicated uh, lifestyles of like, are you conservative or are you a liberal? What do you think about these complicated uh, social issues in the culture war? And then a you know very intelligent person who uh, understands the various perspective is going to be able to play around with your expectations and lead you on one path. And then all of a sudden you're on the other path and you know cognitively you're all messed up and you have to do uh, you know this deep thought of uh, analyzing various scenarios. And it comes out as laughter and i think like aristotle calls it like the catharsis the purpose of theater where uh, you, you know like in the greek theater where you had humor and everyone would sit down and the purpose of the humor was to show the downfall of bad character traits where on stage uh like in hollywood uh you know till today you have a person who is portrayed as like the average person or the average better person and then they have this character flaw uh you know generally shown as some form of hubris and that character flaw leads to their downfall. And then the person in the crowd recognizes like, well, yeah, I have this bad character trait too. I would like to, uh, you know, so it's meant like to teach people what they're uh, allowed and not allowed to do. Cause I also have that bad character trait. I would probably also in that situation make that same bad decision. However, I know that there would be negative consequences to me if I did that. And so the humor is somewhat like revealing that and that, you know, that's what Aristotle call, calls like the catharsis of humor, where you're laughing at yourself in the sense that uh, you recognize that I don't have that sort of self-control. Like, for example, I would commit adultery. Like, it's just that I don't have the opportunity to commit adultery. But had I had the opportunity to commit adultery, I would certainly be weak and I would do it. Okay, great. So what have you been doing in last month or so, particularly with your online streaming life? Um. I've been really covering a lot of research. Um, I mean, to spoil your stream with my like negative take on humor or how okay. you know, that's, that's fine. my interpretation is that like my mom loves John Stewart and, and uh, you know, my parents. Uh, and, and I mean, so if you do want to go further into that, like, I think I don't have to keep on harping on the lowbrow or negative character. Why, especially the liberal or conservative part uh, of why you know, liberals and conservatives find different, but I think it's this complex otherizing where you think that like our way of life is the best way of life and then uh um you know these complicated expectations were rather than you think well i could have been a conservative or a liberal but you have to choose one um so i don't know if i, I spoiled your you know your fuller review and humor 
No, I've already talked about it on my own, so I just wanted to get a different perspective. Um, but uh, what else have you been streaming about over the past month? Mostly just reading papers. I'm focusing on the Vienna Circle and metaphysics and the philosophy of science, which is uh, a little bit interesting. Like Kevin McDonald, uh, you focused on the Frankfurt uh, School and uh, – related to the sciences you could say there you maybe the vienna circle is just as much or more important than the frankfurt circle in terms of how we view science the downfall of uh metaphysics uh you know scientific realism logical empiricism so i've been reading a lot of papers last week i read a paper about you know oswald spangler in the critique of the vienna circle on Wednesday, I plan I'm going to go you know, in detail and like Kant and Frege and Bertrand Russell. And so also a little bit interesting that a lot of these German rationalists um, are, are recorded as being anti-Semitic. And uh, you're looking at their theories to say, what was it necessary uh, for their worldview and the rise of mathematical logic that uh, you know, Frege, uh, Russell, Kant, were anti-Semitic. I'm not sure. What was Bertrand Russell a big name to you growing up? A uh, moderate name, yeah, moderately significant. Uh, probably the most prominent uh, atheist up into the 1960s. And, and have you heard about his supposed anti-Semitism? Not that I recall. No. Yeah, I mean, his wasn't as you know, you know blatant or major. He wasn't like like Frege was actually aligned with the Nazis. Kant opposed. Um, allowing Jews to be emancipated into German society. Um, but, you know, certain view that uh, it was a little bit interesting by more focusing on you're just trying to understand things and, and logic. So mostly research related to streaming. Um, I've had a few conversations, people popping on. Pill Eater is, uh, you know, around, I guess he's in San Francisco. We spoke a few times. Church of Entropy has came back, like, uh, I guess, Maybe her schedule opened up, so she's joined my Sunday Week in Review. Um, I might be on Modern Day Debate with uh, um, this major Muslim debater who wants to uh, debate against Judaism. Um, I've been speaking, you know, Jenny Simon from Portland. She might no. have been in your audience for a while. So I've been speaking with her. So, yeah, I'm still around speaking to people. I saw that guy, Josh Neal just wrote another book on conspiracy theories, uh, you know, who, who got doxxed, who was with the McSpencer group and then got doxxed. Uh, and he's been back, you know, around again, but I saw he just came out with another book on conspiracy theories. Okay, I'm going to move on, David. Good to talk to you, man. Take care. Okay, yeah, I appreciate you inviting me on. And, uh, you know, just to mention, uh, I you, you didn't stream for a few weeks. I, even a few people asked me, just like, what happened to Luke? So, uh, you know, I said you wasn't sure, but, uh, you know, said we'd been in contact. I, I assumed you were okay. But, uh, yeah, that uh, you hadn't streamed for a while that even a handful of people, uh, you reached out to me to, to be what's up with Luke. So, uh, you know, yeah, I took, took three weeks off. Uh, I was just doing other things, mainly working, mainly making money and uh, dealing with the great books. So I just kind of checked out from politics or I just checked out from the creating programs or even blog posts or social media posts just uh i stopped wanting to create anything and i just uh 
I listened to Blood Meridian and Moby Dick, and I've been delving into this uh, great Patreon. It's called uh, Hardcore Literature. So I spent $25 on this guy's uh, Patreon, Benjamin McAvoy. And uh, so I've been getting all his 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 uh, posts on Shakespeare and on Proust and on uh, Tolstoy and Cormac McCarthy. And uh, I've just been just been learning from him for, for the past month instead of uh, creating my own content. Okay, good to talk to you, David. I'll talk to you later, man. Okay, yeah. Take care, Luke. Okay. Take care, bro. Okay, um, so while I was largely checked out, I did hear about the Tucker Carlson interview with uh, Vladimir Putin. And while it sounds like a lot of it was not riveting, I did not uh, listen to it because I'm very rarely interested in what politicians have to say. Uh, I noticed that the news media overwhelmingly reacted with derision. And so my reaction to their derision was considerable skepticism. So I was interested in what John Mearsheimer had to say about the Tucker Carlson interview. So let me play some of this. Watch uh, Tucker Carlson's um, very, very much much anticipated and very much watched interview with uh, President um, Putin. Uh, Were you surprised at all with the history lesson and with the articulation of Putin with his sound, rational answers to the questions that uh, Tucker Carlson put to him? I was not surprised at all by the answers, the substance of the answers that Putin gave, uh, especially the sort of uh, last two thirds of the discussion between the two of them. I mean, most of what Putin said uh, we've heard before. Uh, I was surprised that he went on and on uh, for about a half hour at the beginning talking about ancient history. Uh, It was all more or less beside the point. Uh, He could have made his point in a minute or two or three or four. Uh, He didn't have to take a half hour to do that. And I think it probably turned some viewers off and it detracted from his overall performance. So I was surprised by that. I thought Tucker Carlson did an excellent job trying to end that uh, discourse that was taking place and instead get him to talk about more contemporary issues. But he was not very successful at that. But eventually he got to that. And I thought that Putin demonstrated that he has a terrific command of the facts. He has a clear-cut view of the world and a clear-cut view of what he is doing in Ukraine. You can disagree with that as you see fit. but the- Right. The, the news media coverage of Putin is that he's a madman. He's an evil man. He's the second coming of Adolf Hitler. He's, he's mentally ill. And uh, John Mearsheimer has the opposite perspective, essentially that Vladimir Putin is the most competent leader of a major power, I think, in approximately 30 years. And I, I would side with Mishima's perspective much more than that of the mainstream news media. I think that he is an impressive individual. I know that's an unpopular thing to say in the West and that I'll be accused of being Putin's puppet or something like that. Right. So why why on earth would someone say that Putin is an impressive individual? Because he took a Russia that was falling apart and he restored it to the great powers. Like considering the hand that he was dealt, right, he has done more with the raw material at his disposal to advance the interests of his major power than any other major power leader in the past 30 years. Like that. But the fact is that, uh, as I said on the show the last time, he is a world historical figure. Well, you and I, along with a lot of our colleagues, have already been accused by the uh, Ukrainian PR people, or maybe it's their intelligence apparatus, of being Russian propagandists. So they can accuse us uh, of whatever they want, whether there's evidence for it uh, or not. Were you surprised that the media and the establishment here in the West dumped on Tucker Carlson. I agree with your analysis of how Putin came off, and I agree with your analysis of Tucker Carlson. I thought he was courageous, gifted, and and quite intelligent in the manner in which uh, he went on this. Yes, of course, my. And another reason why I think this story is important is that Tucker Carlson, I think, is very likely to be Donald Trump's vice president nominee. 
And then if Trump and Carlson win, Tucker Carlson would be next in line to be president of the United States. And I don't think that's far-fetched. I'd say the odds are probably 25% that Tucker Carlson, 30% that Tucker Carlson will become Trump's VP. And then if if they win, you know, the, the odds would probably be about 40% that uh, Tucker Carlson would be the next president of the United States after Donald Trump. My uh, friend and former colleague, but we haven't spoken uh, in a while. But were you surprised? And I'm no unabashed Tucker Carlson fan. I think he does some things that are excellent, and he does a lot of things that are just cringeworthy. So he's very much a mixed bag, like Donald Trump himself. Surprised that Hillary Clinton called him a useful idiot, that the, the media only dwelt on Evan Gershkovich, the um, Wall Street Journal reporter who's now charged with espionage. None of the mainstream media, perhaps out of jealousy, that they didn't get the interview, praised him for exposing this to the, to the world, as he did, with hundreds of millions of viewers. What was very interesting to me is that Putin made a number of very important substantive points. And if you look at the mainstream media and the establishment response in the West, nobody focused on the substance. They didn't say that Putin said something that was wrong. For example, I thought it was very interesting that he said, Putin, that uh, in uh, the immediate aftermath of the attack, this, the attack took place in February 2022, shortly thereafter, uh, when negotiations were taking place in Istanbul, he was asked uh, by the French and I think someone else uh, if, as goodwill gesture, he would pull the Russian troops out of the Kiev area. Uh, and uh, hopefully that would uh, facilitate the negotiations in Istanbul. And he did that. And many people thought that he did that at the time because he was losing uh, the war or the fight in, in the Kiev area. But he said, no, it was a gesture of goodwill. And I was asked by the French uh, and someone else to do this. Uh, if that's true, that's, I think, an important piece of information. And nobody refuted it. So as far as I'm concerned, what Putin said was true, unless you know somebody can show that it's not true. But he was making a, a substantial number of other points on important issues. And you would think that the Western media and the Western foreign policy establishment would contest him on the issues. But no, that's not what happened. Uh, in fact, what they did was they smeared Putin and they smeared Tucker Carlson. And this is just the way things work in the West. If you don't agree with somebody and you can't defeat that somebody on the basis of facts, what you do is smear the person. Right. Uh, Chris, let's run the uh, clip where Tucker Carlson asks uh, President Putin if uh, he would ever invade Poland any, under any circumstances. And then Professor Mearsheimer, it segues into what Boris Johnson did to the agreement in Turkey. You'll see President Putin going like this, showing his fingers about an inch to an inch and a quarter apart, showing the, the size and depth of detail that was in the agreement, much of which was initialed and signed by the chief uh, Ukrainian negotiator. Watch this. Can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia, or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It's just threat-mongering. So I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding what you're saying. I don't think that I am. I think you're saying you want a negotiated settlement to what's happening in Ukraine. Right. And we made it. We prepared a huge document in Istanbul that was initialed by the head of the Ukrainian delegation. He affixed his signature to some of the provisions, not to all of it. He put his signature and then he himself said, we were ready to sign it and the war would have been over long ago, 18 months ago. However, Prime Minister Johnson came, talked us out of it, and we missed that chance. Boris Johnson, of course, was outraged at that statement, but that's uh, been reported uh, many, many times. And here it is. Uh, out of the horse's mouth. And this is exactly uh, what you said about pulling the troops out of Kiev so as to facilitate the negotiations in Turkey right. until the West interceded. That's correct. I mean, the first set of comments about Poland make perfect sense. I mean, the conventional wisdom in the West is we better start preparing for World War III because after he conquers all of Ukraine, he's going to conquer countries in Eastern Europe and then he's going to threaten Western Europe and this is going to lead to World War III. This, of course, is nonsense. Uh, he's never expressed any interest in conquering all of Ukraine, uh, much less conquering countries in Eastern Europe to include Poland. And that was reflected in his comments. Uh, and uh, I just don't understand why people continue to make that argument that he is interested in conquering uh, countries like Poland and conquering all of Ukraine. And in fact, just to 
go back to Istanbul, that deal that they were about to cut did not involve Ukraine surrendering its sovereignty to Russia. You know, I, I want to go on to Israel and Gaza, but I have to make you laugh a little bit by running a former uh, Republican presidential nominee and still senior senator from uh, Utah, Mitt Romney, uh, making absurd arguments, cut number eight, Chris, on the floor of the Senate. This is the opposite of what you just said. Watch this. If we fail to help Ukraine, Putin will invade a NATO nation. He may delay his next invasion until he rebuilds his decimated military. But we must be clear-eyed. Ukraine is not the end. It is a step. If we fail to help Ukraine, China will eventually absorb Taiwan. If we fail to help Ukraine, NATO, the alliance has prevented great power conflict for over 75 years, will falter and eventually disintegrate. This is the nonsense that the Senate apparently uh, accepts when it votes overwhelmingly. I think it was uh, like 75 to 25, more or less those numbers in favor of this aid package. Yeah, I mean, this is the conventional wisdom, not just in the Senate, but in the foreign policy establishment. The the problem that these folks face is there's just no evidence to support that. Where is the evidence that Putin is interested in conquering all of Ukraine? Uh, And where is the evidence that he's interested in conquering countries in Eastern Europe? And what do they have to say about the fact that Putin was willing as a goodwill gesture to pull forces out of the Kiev area in March of 2022? What does he say to that? I mean, this is the substance. This is what we should be talking about. But again, we don't talk about substance. We engage in smearing. I want to uh, switch gears for a minute because of relatively recent development. Okay, so two weeks ago, the special special prosecutor investigating Joe Biden's mishandling of documents came out and said you can't really charge Joe Biden with committing a crime uh, because he's you know got a terrible memory and he's just essentially not mentally competent enough to deliberately commit a crime. Let's get how it goes. It's pretty obvious that President Biden doesn't like going on television, that his inner circle shields him from the press. But suddenly, Biden was attacking Donald Trump in a televised speech from the White House. And here's one reason. The president wanted to change the subject from his memory issues in the wake of that stinging special counsel's report saying he has difficulty remembering things. Also, Biden finally seems to be taking the advice of those who say he has to prove his competence by going on the air rather than trotting out aides who say how sharp he is in private. Trump gave his opponent an opening with these South Carolina rally remarks, recounting what he told a NATO leader about the failure to spend what's required on defense if Russia attacked. I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. So, a large part of the reason that uh, Donald Trump has the support he has is that he just blurts out whatever he's thinking. So, yeah, you can make a good case that Donald Trump is a serial liar, but he is at the same time more transparent than any other major politician of which I'm aware in American history. And that prompted this Biden address. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. To which Trump posted, could somebody please inform our uninformable president that NATO has to pay their bills? They are right now paying a small fraction of what we are for the disaster in Ukraine. The world got a stark and tragic reminder of Vladimir Putin's murderous tactics in his invasion of Ukraine, with the death in an Arctic prison camp of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, with much of the media and Western leaders blaming Putin for the courageous dissident's demise. 
Well, this is a dissident who chose to go back to Russia knowing that this is what awaited him. Uh, if Putin deliberately murdered this guy, why didn't he, he do it years ago? This guy's been in custody for years, and who knows what other health problems he has. But yeah, I don't think Putin's a, a liberal. You know, I don't think he's particularly concerned about the human rights of the opposition leader. Meanwhile, the press is also reporting that Biden's lawyers unsuccessfully pushed the Justice Department to remove from special counsel Robert Hurst's report the findings about memory issues, bringing the president back to the very subject he wants to leave behind. I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is Media Buzz. Okay, so Tucker Carlson is somehow getting blamed for the death of this uh, dissident in Russia, which seems absurd. Here's uh, Tucker Carlson's response. I'll use the devil's advocate. But advocate away. Yes. Okay, I'll tell you. You should challenge in, in, in the rules of an interview, and you're a master in, in, your, in your business. Uh, it's not for and, me uh, to give you a lecture about let's that. Let's say hello but, to uh, Colin Liddell. Colin, how's it going, mate? Colin, can you hear me? Hello, hello. Yes, Colin, how's it going? Yeah, fine. How are you, Luke? You've been uh, absent for a while, haven't you? Yeah, just took a few weeks off to do other things with my life. I think it's you know good to to check out. What what's the longest that you've gone without uh, making public commentary? Uh, it's hard to say, really. Um, usually, I put something out every few days. Um, of course, you know, doing a show is 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 a bigger commitment. I just uh, you know post something that's quite easy to do. It doesn't it's not too labor intensive. I don't have to use too much energy. I just have to have an idea and something to say. Uh, did you pay any attention to the Tucker Carlson interview of Vladimir Putin or any of the press coverage of it? Oh, yeah. I kind of like waited up for days, you know, uh, waiting for that to happen. I was so excited. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts? I was. I, I wanted to learn more about ninth century Russian history. And, you know, I wasn't disappointed, honestly, you know, so I got the full story. Finally, Rurik and Oleg and all those uh, you know great names from the past got their due. And anything going on in the Russia-Ukraine conflict? I mean, that that's catching your attention. We we you know seem to getting an overwhelming consensus that things are not going in Ukraine's favor the last few months. Oh, no, I totally disagree. I think uh, I think things aren't going in uh, U- Ukraine's favor. Uh, this attempt by the Russians to um, kind of sabotage the West, which is underway in America, is slowly but surely being defeated. America is going to stump up a lot of extra funding. And uh, the uh, kind of delay in American uh, support has actually prompted the Europeans to throw a lot more into the ring as well, I feel. So I think, uh, you know, the um, the overwhelming power of the West is slowly being mobilized against Russia. Uh, Putin's really stretching himself very, very thin at the moment. Uh, fiscally and uh, financially, Russia is on the ropes. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, s- something will probably happen this year. Uh, meaning, meaning what? Meaning, you know, Russia will collapse at some point. I don't. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just think that the Ukrainians are getting more and more uh, 
top-notch weaponry. And the Russians are going to have uh, real problems with their um, with their economy this year. Everything seems to be kind of hanging upon their Putin having this fake election in March and being reappointed as the leader of Russia, and then hope hoping that uh, Trump can cause enough trouble in America. I don't think that's going to play out. Uh, I think um, you know Trump's uh, he's sort of coming apart at, this, at the seams. Uh, he's 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 been hit with these massive uh, lawfare suits, and you know maybe they are a bit unfair and all that. But uh, you know this is kind of karma for this guy because this is this is somebody who's uh, you know has a long record of cheating, defrauding, and you know kind of uh, not paying his bills. And so you know if they can take him down with lawfare, then it's it's a little bit dirty. But you know so what? And I think this this will affect his donor base. I mean, can anybody donating money to Trump? Basically, you're not donating money to Trump and his election and his campaigning. You're donating money to uh, his legal bills, and uh, you know this this bottomless pit of uh, you know, kind of legal liabilities that, that's opening up below him. So I think that's going to take take a, a lot of the the wind out of his wings. And also, the way he's reacting is not is not too good. He's becoming more and more of a kind of unhinged personality, ranting on about uh, how unfairly he's being treated. And you know, maybe there's a little bit of truth in that, but that's not really what people want to hear. And then he's saying more increasingly stupid things about uh, the, the war in in the Ukraine and about NATO, and uh, you know, sort of pissing on NATO. That's not really. Uh, a good look, uh, and then you you know this is against the backdrop of somebody like Navalny being uh, sort of treated in a very very um kind of harmful way that uh you know either he was, he was murdered or he was just brutalized to the point where he kind of g- gave up the ghost is there a wider significance to people in the West for Navalny's death? Well, I mean, he's not teaching us anything new, but I mean, this is a guy who's quite charismatic. Uh, I think it'll have a big impact on a lot of Russians as well. You see, this is this is probably more important because I think, um, you know, Navalny was somebody who really resonated with the younger generation in, you know, upper class, younger Russians in places like St. Petersburg and Moscow. And so, so for, for Putin to sort of uh, take him out or to allow him to to die in this way is a, is a bad move. This is going to um, really kind of, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Putin's got to play to lots of different audiences. And one of the, the key audiences he has to play to are these sort of uh, depoliticized younger Russians in the metropolitan areas. And what's happened to uh, Navalny, whether it was a murder or just uh, the, the accumulation of uh, m- a mistreatment, that's going to, um, you know, be a bit of a curveball for, for Putin, I should imagine, especially with the election coming up. So, yeah, I think uh, there'll be a lot of people uh, behind Putin, you know, in on, his, on the team Putin, he'll be thinking like, you know, Putin, he's sort of kind of outlived his usefulness. Um, you know, he's made his big play. It hasn't really worked out well. Um, he's starting to make us a bit toxic. People are not going to talk to us. They're not going to do a deal with us. Uh, Putin's stimulating opposition to us. Uh, you know, when other countries see a Russia headed by Putin, it sort of 
aggravates them and uh, mobilizes them against Russia. So I think the people at the top in Russia who are, you know, sort of on team on team Putin, but, you know, in the shadows behind the guy, they're going to be thinking, yeah, this guy, it's not going to work out. We've got to, it's time to, um, you know, make a change of management. So I think there'll be a, a, a few people thinking along those lines and those people will have the, uh, the ways and means to, you know, remove Putin and of course, uh, if Putin is taken down, that's going to create a lot of instability as well. So, you know, it could be a very interesting year in Russia. And, uh, you know, it could be very dicey all round, of course, if Russia descends into chaos. And this is this is the reason why, um, for example, the Biden administration has been trying to kind of slowly, gradually help uh, Ukraine to kind of eke out a victory rather than sort of like pumping in all the uh, necessary assistance and the the, uh, the weapons that they required. So the, the, the Biden administration has been very, very timid and um, sort of half-hearted in its support of, uh, of Ukraine. But uh, the way things are going, you know, they're going to keep supporting uh, Ukraine until, until uh, you know, Putin is defeated in, in some way, whatever form that takes. We'll see. Why do you think the dissident right is so hostile to Ukraine, as embodied perhaps in the commentary of the late lamented coach Red Pill? Well, the well, I'm not going to talk about that irrelevant, uh, rather pathetic character, but uh, the dissident right in general it, it is, uh, to a large degree, uh, a creation of the Russians. I mean, the Russians are the, uh, you know, for 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 years, for decades, the Russians have been sort of boosting all these kind of weird memes and fake news and, uh, you know, kind of um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and so on. And, and this has all been channeled through the distant right. And, I mean, anybody, you know, like you or me who have uh, been in the distant right for, you know, ages uh, can see how this is all played out. We've seen all these uh, things uh, go around and come around and, it's just been pretty obvious that the Russians have had a, a very um, heavy hand uh, in what the uh, the alt-right has done, how it's evolved and what it became. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's had a very negative influence because I think there is a legitimate uh, radical critique of Western society. And that's really what, you know, I was interested in when I, uh, you know, uh, was subsumed into the the distant right. I was interested in this uh, legitimate criticism of Western society, uh, but that was then sort of uh, co-opted and weaponized to be used against the West and to you know spread you know f- um, toxic memes and to stir up um, uh, various forms of conflict and polarization and confusion in the West. What what a specific examples of uh, Russian promotion or creation of the dissident right? Well, I think, uh, I think Andrew Anglin is obviously linked to, uh, to Russia. I think uh, the TRS cluster, they're obviously linked to Russia through Bausman. Bausman, who is now in Russia itself, you know, so there are lots of cases. Subscribe Star was um, also founded by a, um, somebody with connections to Russia. 
So, you know, if you dig down into it, if you look at some of the things that I've uncovered on, uh, you know, my website and, and on my uh, uh, who's who in the distant right, you'll see that there are lots of um, hard, there, there are lots of items of hard evidence of uh, Russia co-opting and, and uh, you know, distorting the dissident right. Um, and you can see that uh, they've also had a, an enormous influence on um, some very big and important people. It's, it's quite obvious that Elon Musk is, uh, you know, he's, he's in, he's in the, uh, the Putin camp. And, uh, you know, your friend uh, John Mearsheimer, you know, this guy who you know, used to be some sort of uh, semi-respected academic, he's a blatant uh, Putin shill. Almost everything that comes out of his mouth, it just sounds like, you know, pure shillery to me. And and I, I may be asking you to repeat yourself. What does Russia get out of promoting the dissident right in the West? Well, quite a lot. I mean, look at look at uh, uh, you know you know basically Russia has to fight dirty. They they have an, an economy uh, which before the war was about the size of Italy's. and then they're up against America and the rest of the West um, militarily. They can't really uh, cope, except, uh, you know, they have some advantages like their uh, readiness to um, sacrifice large numbers of people and so on. But militarily, in the age of uh, modern technological warfare, Russia has to uh, find a um, cheap, asymmetric way to uh, cause confusion in the West. And, you know, the Western societies... Um, especially in the past, uh, to a lesser degree now, we're, we're much more open. And uh, it was um, the only feasible way that Russia could um, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the West was to use various kinds of Kremlin ops to destabilize and polarize Western societies. And so I think, uh, you know, this is, this is what they've been uh, doing, and especially since 2014 and 20. 14 they, they they really ramped up before 2014 they were also doing it and so of course it makes uh, they can if they can get western people uh fighting about all sorts of um cultural um warfare issues then that takes that takes the west's eye off the ball so to speak um you know there's there's all sorts of uh, benefits to russia to kind of stir up the shit with the distant right. And uh, what they've done to the Republican Party, I mean, the Republican Party used to be the main sort of hawkish party in the United States. And by playing on this kind of um, underbed of ideas of America firstism, they've, they've managed to uh, take, uh, almost take over the, uh, the Republican Party. Because, I mean, basically Trump is... Um, he is pushing their agenda, and this is now um, the almost the dominant agenda in the Republican Party, at least while you know Trump is, still has his power. How significant is Putin's leadership as opposed to any other likely leader of of Russia, particularly when it comes to Western interests? What do you mean by that? Well, let's say Vladimir Putin dropped dead tonight. Uh, how 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 would that affect Western interests, Ukrainian interests, uh, German interests, uh, Polish interests, uh, American interests, if there was a different leader of Russia? 
Is Putin oh, yeah. a singular threat, or is he just a representative of uh, basic Russian interests? I'd say the, the the latter. I mean, it's not like Putin is this unique um, sort of Hitlerian figure. Um, I think if you took down Putin, you'd still have the problem of Russia to deal with. Um, but it would it would be an easier problem to deal with because right now um, Russia has to take a loss. That's the logic of the situation. Russia was hoping for a swift and easy and relatively painless victory in Ukraine. And right now, the, uh, the I think the number of Russian casualties killed and wounded is somewhere in the region of 400,000. So, you know, and they've completely fucked up their economy and uh, they've, they've moved to almost North Korean style of um, economic system to keep going. So Russia's pushing itself to the point of collapse and they're going to reach that point of collapse if Putin is at the helm. But if Putin was removed, you could have a new guy uh, who would obviously be part of the Russian deep state in the same way that uh, Putin was, but you'd have a new guy who didn't have a tarnished reputation when it came to doing deals. You know, it would be, okay, this is a new guy. Uh, they've revalued the Kremlin ruble here. Uh, maybe we can do a deal with this guy. Maybe this guy will keep his deals, you know. So um, the trouble with Putin is his his credit as a deal maker is, 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 sh is shot to shit, you know. So... This is the, the the reason why people within the uh, Russian administration, within the Russian um, deep state, will be thinking like maybe it's time to, you know, make a move and uh, you know get the knives out. Is Russia a serious threat to Poland, to the Baltic states? Well, I think if um, if they succeed in. Uh, driving America into a kind of uh, isolationist mindset, then you've got all these European countries that don't always see eye to eye. Um, they'll have to come up with a solution, a security solution that can keep um, Russia at bay. It's not really clear what that would look like. It'd probably mean a, a nuclear Germany. And then you'd have another problem, which be which would be the the uh, sort of in, inherent dominance of Europe by Germany. So yeah, I don't know. These are old historical patterns. Uh, they go away, but they kind of tend to uh, sort of, you know, come back in all sorts of uh, interesting ways. And is a strong NATO in America's interests? Is Trump just totally out to lunch with his frequent anti-NATO sentiments? Yeah, obviously. I mean. Um, Right, right now, uh, we've we've had an imperfect global system which has avoided major wars around the world, and that's generally been quite a good thing, uh, I would say. Uh, if you remove the international system, then you have strong regional powers throwing their weight around, and that's going to lead to all sorts of um, you know, breakdowns in law and order around the world, all sorts of uh, conflicts and chaos. All sorts of disruption uh, to, you know, the the the, uh, the flow of trade and uh, the economic well-being of the world, and of course it'd be very very interesting. But I think uh, most people would instinctively be against that because it would probably uh, hit their lifestyles extremely hard.
And uh, do you think Donald Trump stands a, a good chance, say, better than 40% of becoming the next president of the United States? No, I don't think so. I think uh, his chances are probably more around uh, less than 20%, I would say, uh, uh, you know, um, to be as realistic without being too harsh or... I'd, I, I would say that they're probably even less than that, but uh, you know, it's, it's always very difficult to predict the future. The future is um, murky by its very nature. But I would say uh, he has a diminishing chance of becoming president. I think um, you know he's not going to appeal to a lot of people. He won't have um, also he won't have the funding. Most of his uh, funding is being ripped away by these uh, lawfare attacks. Uh, this is going to scare off a lot of his donors. Um, the Biden campaign, the Democrats, they'll have a lot of money in the can. They'll be, uh, you know, they'll be able to attack Trump quite successfully. Um, you know, Trump's going to, he has a lot of weak points now. And, uh, you know, okay, they're, they're both, I mean, basically Biden looks a bit old and dodgy, but, you know, so does Trump. Trump looks old and a bit kind of... Um, half crazed which isn't even which is even worse so i think uh when the election sort of when it sort of um comes down to a head-to-head -head between biden and trump if it does come down to a head-to-head -head be be between biden and trump i think uh you know people most people are going to make the safe choice and, and go with biden again and um, biden looks like a safe pair of hands he doesn't do anything um he doesn't fly off the uh the handle he doesn't do some sort of crazy, unexpected shit. You know, he, he, he seems to make his moves quite carefully. So I think uh, that will appeal to a lot of voters. What's your perspective on Tucker Carlson and has it changed over time? Well, I never really realized how stupid he was before because, I mean, basically I used to hear Tucker, you know, uh, going on about, American politics, which is a bit stupid in itself. And so uh, he sounded like he had a few good takes, you know, uh, on American politics some years ago. Uh, and then it became more and more obvious that he was, uh, you know, just, you know, uh, this was before he was fired by Fox. It became more and more obvious that he was just trying to uh, uh, kind of bait the boomers and you know get all these boomers agitated so that they'd watch his um his show on on fox and it started to become increasingly cringe at that time and then he started to delve into these conspiracy theories and then I, I, you know it was it was only a matter of time before fox fired him i i started to think at the time and then we found out that he he cost them about 700 million dollars so, uh, you know, um, he became at that point um, a bit of a, an oddball fringe character. And then he started to push these uh, ridiculous Russia Putin narratives. And so, you know, then he actually went to Russia and then you kind of saw, oh, OK, this is a guy who's now out of his depth, who doesn't understand what a fucking shopping trolley is, who doesn't understand the exchange rate between the ruble and the dollar and really basic stuff. Um, you know, this guy was actually walking around Russia looking, looking like an idiot. And maybe, maybe he's just playing to his idiotic audience because, 
you know, his audience is actually as stupid as that. So maybe he's he's actually intelligent enough to know how a shopping trolley works. Maybe he's intelligent enough to uh, know the basic economics involved in uh, you know Russian supermarkets. Um, but or you know, so either he's stupid or he he's audience is incredibly stupid and he's just like playing to that so that's the, those are the two possibilities that spring to mind there and if, if he's stupid and honest then he's still he's just like a kind of okay he's a, he's a stupid guy but he's sincere so you know he's not too bad but if he's playing to his incredibly stupid audience and reinforcing their incredible stupidity and doing that in a cynical way to kind of um, generate views and um, to subvert American society, then he's a real, you know, POS. You know, he's he's, he's a, somebody that um, really deserves a Novichok sandwich, in my opinion. What's a Novichok sandwich? That's that, um, you know, interesting chemical um, com- commensable that uh, Putin likes to uh, feed to his uh, uh, ex-friends and uh, challengers. Oh, what do you think of the chances that Tucker Carlson becomes Trump's vice president? Uh, no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, well, it's it's not impossible. Um, Trump could go there, uh, but I, I don't I don't think it would, would work because, in a way, uh, Tucker's too too much like Trump, and so he doesn't do anything to balance the ticket. He just like uh, reinforces the. The uh, brand crazy. Now, do you, do you perceive right wing discourse, right wing punditry, as significantly lower IQ generally than mainstream and left wing commentary? Uh, yeah, now it now definitely yeah yeah. Uh, what we're seeing on the right wing um, is honestly it's embarrassing. It is very very embarrassing and anybody who's intelligent or who has a wish to kind of critique society is going to be um kind of repelled by it so uh yeah the the right wing by being weaponized for cheap uh, shillery and polarization ops has become a extremely cringe joke so it's no wonder that um you know, anybody with any intelligence has left uh, the distant right, and it's increasingly looking like a freak show in a, a circus. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this guy used to be known as Frame Game Radio, a.k.a. Mike Benz? Um, yeah, well, he's, uh, he's somebody who believes that um, race is, uh, is not immutable. That's what I know about him. He thinks that, uh, you know, um, also he he believes that gender is is not immutable as well. He thinks that, uh, you know, a male can be a female, a female can be a male, a black man can be a white man, a white man can be a black man, and it all doesn't really matter. That's what he basically believes. Uh, Going by his, um, you know, I was listening to a recent, well, uh, uh, recently I was listening to a conversation he did with uh, Richard Spencer, uh, I think it was in 2018, which was on the uh, the Brundlefly cast, and basically that was his position. Uh, maybe it's not a sincere position because the other thing we know about uh, Frame Game is he's not really a sincere personality. 
He's um, somebody who's who's playing a false game. Uh, how serious is this that right support for the Palestinians? Uh, well, they they any any way to kind of hate on the Jews, really, you know. So um, uh, the only thing that makes any difference between. Uh, their attitude to the Palestinian conflict and their attitude to what's going on in, in the Sudan or Yemen or some other shithole country is that uh, the Palestinians are, uh, you know, up against uh, the the uh, Red Sea pedestrians. So that's the only thing that uh, they, they really care about, a lot of them now. Right. And uh, what's anyway, going... Any, Go anyway, anyway, Luke, I've got to, got to go now. Thanks, so, man. Uh, Thanks for just thought I'd uh, check in and, uh, you know, give the give the show a little bit of support, you know, so you don't go away for another th another three weeks. Thanks. Thanks, Colin. Great to talk to you, man. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Okay. Let me play this clip. I'll use the devil's advocate. But advocate say, away. Yes. Okay. I'll tell you. You should challenge in, in, in the rules of an interview, and you're a master in, in, your, in your business. Uh, it's not for me to give you a lecture about that, but you should challenge some ideas. For instance, uh, you didn't talk about freedom of speech in, in Russia. You did not talk <laughs> about Navalny, about assassinations, about about the restrictions on uh, opposition in the coming uh, elections. I didn't talk about the things that every other American media outlet talks about. Why? Yes, this because is my Because those question. are covered, and because I have spent my life talking to people who run countries in various countries and have mm. concluded the following, that every leader kills people, including my leader. Every leader kills people. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people, sorry. That's why I wouldn't want to be a leader. Um, that press restriction is universal in the United States. I know because I've lived it. I, you know, ask my former, you know, I, I've had a lot of jobs. Um, and I've done this for 34 years and I know how it works. And um, there's more censorship in Russia than there is in the United States, but there's a great deal in the United States. And so, I, you know, at a certain point, it's like people can decide whether they think, you know, what, what countries they think are better, what systems they think Sir, are better. I, 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 I just I, want to know what he thinks. That was yeah, the whole point. Yeah. yeah, Vladimir Putin's not a liberal. And so judging him by the, the liberal hero system is perhaps inevitable in the West, where we are very much influenced by liberalism. But it, it's also perhaps creating a, a genre error, right? Uh, Putin rules, you know, according to a Russian authoritarian perspective, that's been the dominant political perspective in, in Russia for hundreds of years, all right, hundreds of years prior to communism. International politics trumps international economics when the two are in conflict. Uh, my third point, I want to be very clear. I am not making the argument that great power wars are likely. That's not my argument. My argument is the great power war sits in the background most of the time, and great power war nevertheless has a profound influence on how states behave. And the reason that great power war is not likely dovetails with another point that I made to you folks, and that is that War is so destructive. War is so horrible. The fact that it is so destructive, the fact that it is so horrible, makes it very difficult to get states to initiate it, right? And what drives that, its destructiveness, is nationalism, industrialization, and the nuclear revolution, or nuclear weapons, right? Nationalism makes wars very destructive, right? Because you're able to create mass armies, and you're able to uh, motivate those armies to hate the other, the other, a lot of otherness at the core of nationalism. So nationalism... 
uh, makes wars highly destructive. Industrialization, uh, all these weapons that are designed to kill people, running around out on the modern battlefield, with, uh, all these weapons that are highly sophisticated and maximize the chances they're going to kill you. Whoa. Right, so, uh, so very industrialization. And then of course, nuclear weapons, right? Nuclear weapons, they're called weapons of mass destruction for a very good reason. So nationalism, industrialization, and nuclear weapons make war incredibly destructive. And that makes war less likely. You understand the point? It makes it less likely, but nevertheless, it makes it as important as ever because it sits in the background. It's still a possibility. That's the basic <coughs> argument uh, that I am making to you. Okay, let me shift gears now and talk about the decision to go to war. Okay, my second theme. You remember when Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine war started, February uh, 24th, 2022. The Russians clearly invaded Ukraine. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, basic argument is that uh, this war uh, was both unjust and unlegal, illegal. Uh, and uh, there's just no question that almost everybody thought that the war was wrong the initiation of the war was wrong uh, and should. Right. I've done, you know, pretty horrible things in, in my life. And I, I don't advocate them. And I wish I had made different choices. On the other hand, they were part of a trajectory that advanced my life or that enabled my life to survive. I, I'm thinking about when I was essentially bedridden in my 20s and living at home with my parents in Newcastle, California, in an isolated part of Northern California, bedridden, isolated, lonely, couldn't figure out you know, what was going on with my health. And I had this growing fear as the years rolled by that at my current tra trajectory, I would not be able to escape what was holding me back. And so... I, I developed the sense that there was solutions for my problems that were out there. I just needed to find a way to connect with people. And I thought the easiest way for me to form a strong enough connection with people is to find, you know, a woman who loves me. And then she will be motivated enough to find solutions to my debilitating health problems. So I started placing and answering a ton of singles ads and a steady stream of women came up to, to visit me. I started going to bed with them. So I went from being Shomen Nagia, which is traditional posture of Orthodox Jews where they don't touch the opposite sex outside of family members to uh, very deeply touching, you know, whole, whole stream of women who came to visit me. And I did uh, form various relationships. I moved to Florida with one woman in large part because she seemed to have a great psychiatrist. And I wanted to go see her psychiatrist and and all this sex and all this promiscuity and all this opportunism and and using uh, of women that I manifested, it did get a solution to my chronic illness, all right? I, I did find a great psychiatrist, my girlfriend's great psychiatrist, the late Daniel Goldwyn in Orlando, Florida. He did get me on a medication that restored me to two-thirds of a normal life. And so, obviously, I wish I hadn't acted in unethical and exploitive fashion, but it did enable my survival. And when your survival is at stake, right, people will break moral rules, and nation states will break moral rules when they feel like their survival is at stake. Condemned. Now, why is that the case? It's because of the domination of a non-Clausewitzian view 
which says that international law and just war theory should dictate when states can go to war. And I believe that almost all of you believe this, and I believe that almost everybody uh, who's reasonably well-educated in all right, so if you are a religious Christian or a religious Jew, you believe that uh, religious considerations should shape and dominate your decisions about who to go to bed with. That is the ideal, but uh, frequently people don't behave according to their ideals. Right? Very few Orthodox Jews, for example, are fully observant of Jewish law. Has thought about this in the West, believes that there uh, are limited times when you can go to war, or limited circumstances when you can go to war. And those three circumstances, and this is an argument based on just war theory and international law, is you can initiate a war if you have good evidence that the other side is about to attack you. This is called a preemptive attack, right? Mike is about to attack me. I can see that he has loaded up the shotgun. He's coming after me, and I just get in the first blow. So he's really initiating. So this is one reason why I think uh, happiness and forming an internal sense of security and living a life of joy is so important because you're much more likely to feel like your survival is at stake when you're miserable, when your life isn't working, when you are in financially, socially, psychologically desperate situation, right? You will then feel much more ethical latitude in how you behave. For years, I remember I would confide to my psychotherapist, I'm just in survival mode. I mean, that's, that's largely how I lived between, I don't know, gosh, 1993 and say, 2016 and feeling like I was living in survival mode that gave me you know latitude to do almost anything that I thought I needed to do to survive including a lot of things that now make me feel ashamed in the war even though I get in the first blow that's a preemptive strike that's okay according to just war theory that's okay uh, according to international law or most accounts of just war theory second is if we get a UN Security Council resolution uh, I'm unhappy with what Mike is doing I go to the UN Security Council I get a approval from the UN Security Council, then I am justified in attacking Mike. Makes perfect sense. Fits neatly with international law. So the first case is a preemptive strike. Second case is uh, UN Security Council resolution. And the third is that you're allowed to initiate a war, intervene, strike into a country if it's engaging in mass murder or genocide. Right? This is the idea of you see what's happening in Rwanda and you decide you're just going to send in the 82nd Airborne. You can do that. Right? There's, you're acting according to just war theory. This makes perfect sense to all of you. The two cases, which I've already mentioned before in my setup remarks, where you're not allowed to initiate a war are, number one, a preventive war. This is not preemptive. Remember I talked about preemptive is where Mike's going to attack me and I beat him uh, to the punch. That's preemptive. That's okay. A preventive war is where I see Mike is growing more and more powerful, and I want to cut him off at the legs before he becomes too powerful. That's a preventive war, right? The second is a war of opportunity. This is a war where, you know, Mike and I are competitors, and uh, I'm thinking about attacking that person over there as a way of gaining more power so that I improve my position relative to Mike. That's a war of opportunity. It's an opportunity to acquire more power, right? Those are verboten. Preventive war, wars of opportunity. They're verboten according to just war theory and according to um, international law. Now, let's just go back to Ukraine. The conventional wisdom in the body politic in the West is that Putin invaded because he was an imperialist. He was interested in gaining uh, more power for Russia, creating a greater Russia, right? It was a War of opportunity. The vast majority of people in the West believed that it was a war of opportunity, right? He was trying to gain more power for Russia, make Russia more powerful, make it a greater Russia, right? That was the argument. That's verboten, and that's why everybody criticized him. I argued, on the other hand, and now a number of others like Jan Stoltenberg, uh, who is the head of NATO, have argued this, that it was a preventive war. But my argument is it was a preventive war. He was not going to let Ukraine become part of NATO. He was going to prevent that from happening. So there's, let's call it the John's, John Yen Stoltenberg argument, 
right? And then there's the conventional wisdom. Both arguments are ruled out of court according to just war theory and international law, right? Neither, neither is acceptable, right? Both are very Clausewitzian arguments, right? So if you think about what's going on here, right? Uh, with this non-Clausewitzian argument, remember, Clausewitz doesn't talk about whether anything is morally justified uh, or, or whether it violates international law. It's a tool of statecraft. Clausewitz says if John sees an opportunity right, to protect himself in the face of this threat from Mike, or Mike sees a threat to protect himself in the face of a threat from John, Mike and John can do whatever they want. War, and war is a, it's a tool of statecraft. Let's not get wrapped around the axle about ethics and morals or anything like that. That's the Clausewitzian view. And what you want to understand is that the view that almost all of you, I'm sure, have accepted Right? and the vast majority in the body politic have, accept, have accepted, is a non-Clausewitzian view. And what's going on here is that we are basically trying to subordinate the conduct of international politics to a moral or legal order. You want to think about what's going on. This is very important. Nobody really puts it in these terms. We are subordinating the conduct of international politics to a set of moral and legal precepts. Right? It's really a radical way of thinking about the initiation of war, right? And it's fundamentally non-Clausewitzian, right? And the example I like to use to highlight this is the uh, case of Michael, Vol Michael Walzer's famous book on just war theory. Uh, I, I think it's a terrific book. I've used it for years for teaching purposes, even though I, I'm a realist. And the book is a, an attack on realism from the get-go. Uh, if my memory's correct, the first chapter is against realism. That's the title of the chapter. He hates realism, right? Uh, and, and he would hate what I have said to you over the past 10 minutes. And it's a defense of just war theory. And it's in many ways a brilliant book. But it has a fundamental flaw in it, which uh, I believe shows you why my logic trumps his logic, why realism trusts, trumps Michael Walzer's uh, just war theory. And that is, he, towards the end of the book, um, makes the case that in a supreme emergency, when you're on the ropes, when it looks like you're going down the tubes, you can abandon just war theory and act like a realist. Right, so why has Israel slaughtered thousands of Gazans? Because Israel feels its survival is at stake. Why did the United Kingdom, the United States, kill hundreds of thousands of civilians during World War II? Because these countries felt that their survival or their preeminence was at stake. When individuals, communities, and nations feel their survival is at stake, right, they will do virtually anything to survive. And so it's a very dangerous thing to back individuals, communities, and nations into a corner. That's the Walzer argument, right? And uh, he, he, he's fully aware that this is a very dangerous argument for him to make. And I'll make it clear to you in a second why it's a very dangerous argument for him to make, because he's leaving a narrow crack in the door open. And you cannot leave a narrow crack in the door open with somebody like me, because I'll go through that. I'll go through that door very quickly. Right? So, so what, what Walzer is saying, you have to be in really dire straits. You have to be on the verge of being finished off. Right? And the threat has to be really of the most serious nature. And then at the last moment, you can turn yourself into a realist and deal with the problem. The problem, the problem in Walzer's argument is who in their right mind would wait to the last minute? <laughs> if you're up against the mortal foe, if you're not up against the mortal foe, you just think you might be up more against the mortal foe. You've all read Sebastian's work on intentions, right? Sebastian Rosado will tell you intentions are very hard to divine with a high degree of certainty to use his rhetoric. How can I be sure what Mike's intentions will be in 20 or 30 years? I, I can't know. Do I want to wait? Right. That's why on an individual basis, it's a very dangerous thing to confide in people, right? The general useful framework as you go through life is that, generally speaking, you don't want to confide in people anything that you would not want to hear them then gossip about. 
or have your community then gossip about. If you have a disease, all right, and you you share that unnecessarily at work, right, you should only do that if you feel at ease, comfortable, and unthreatened by people then gossiping about your disease. On the other hand, a life where you don't confide in anyone is a fairly barren life. But when you fall in love, or particularly you do intimate things with someone, all right, you do intimate things, you develop intimate feelings, you start confiding, and then you know, most of these intimate relationships uh, end, frequently blow up, and the things that you've confided then get used against you. And so we never know not only how other people will act, we never know how we will act, right? because we will behave differently in different situations, and we will experience things that completely transform us. And so I remember once I had a girlfriend confide something in me, and I said, oh, I must never use this against her. And I tried to hold it back, hold it back, hold it back. And then when things got dicey enough in my relationship with this, this woman, I started using these very intimate things that she had disclosed to me against her. Until he turns into Godzilla? No. Do I want to deal with him now when he's not Godzilla? And maybe when he's a bit weaker than me, right? So you see the problem that Walter has. Once you say, you know, once you have a chapter that deals with the subject of supreme emergency, and you say that in a supreme emergency, you can throw just war theory down the toilet and you can act like a realist, you leave yourself open to the argument that it's better to act like a realist early rather than at the last moment, where if you're dealing with a highly efficient adversary, that adversary will finish you off, right? So you see, this is why the conduct of international politics uh, can never be uh, subordinated um, to uh, a moral or legal order. It, it just can't happen. Uh, now, I, I want So for people who take religion seriously, all right, we, we think everything should be subordinated to a religious or a moral worldview. But when it comes to survival, that simply doesn't hold true. To be very clear here, I'm not saying that there's no room for moral considerations in international politics. My comments may be read to lead in that direction. That's not my argument. I believe that we are all, realists included, moral human beings. I believe that we all have moral compasses. And I believe those moral compasses influence how we think about the world. And another way of stating this is that we all have a hero system, right? Our greatest fear according to the, the book by Ernest Becker, The d Denial of Death, is that we are insignificant. And so we latch on to a hero system that imbues meaning to what are otherwise you know, prosaic choices that we make during the day. And so we all have a hero system, and then we use that hero system to map what is right and wrong, what is significant and insignificant. And having a hero system is essentially a biological necessity for, for people. Right? We, we have to have some system for granting significance, for believing that our choices have eternal significance, and usually we inherit our hero system from our community. World. Okay, I just want to make that clear. You understand why I placed all this emphasis on basic realist logic, but I believe at the same time we think about the world, or at least people like Mike and I think about the world in realist terms. We also have, each of us, a moral compass. And the interesting question you want to ask yourself is how does that realist worldview mesh with that set of moral precepts that guide your thinking about international politics. And my argument is there are three possible scenarios. The first is what the moral compass says you should do and the realist compass says you should do line up. And you have no problem fighting a war, even maybe initiating a war. And sometimes people don't live by realist principles and sometimes it's because they just have such a, a strong commitment to transcendent moral principles 
But frequently, people are just weak. Frequently, individuals, peoples, tribes, nations simply don't have the strength and commitment to put top priority on their own survival. And so those peoples are doomed to the dustbin of history. Right, if the moral compass and the realist compass line up. And they actually do quite often in international politics. You can do things for realist reasons that make sense from a moral point of view. Fighting against Adolf Hitler in World War II, I think it was the morally correct thing to do. Trying to contain the Soviet Union during the Cold War, I think it was the morally correct thing to do. I could point to other examples. So the arrows sometimes line up. There are other cases, this is the second scenario, where moral precepts, which were realist precepts, just don't apply. During the unipolar moment, there's a genocide in Rwanda. You can easily deal with that genocide from a moral perspective because there are no realist considerations involved. It, it, it has no effect on the balance of power. It has nothing to do with great power politics. So there are quite a few cases in international politics, certainly during the unipolar moment, but even uh, in a bipolar or multipolar world, where the balance of power is not affected by the use of military force for moral reasons. Then we come to the third possibility, which is the trick. What happens if moral precepts and realist precepts are at odds with each other? What if your moral compass says do this and your realist compass says do the opposite? Regrettably, you'll do what your realist compass says every time. And the reason you will is because of the nature of international politics and the fact that we operate in an anarchic system. We operate in international anarchy where you have no choice. So my argument is that just war theory and international law although they are both noble enterprises, and in certain circumstances they make good sense when it comes to questions of war of peace, there's no way that the conduct of international politics can ever be subordinated to them. Okay, I got up at uh, 4 a.m. this morning and I took five milligrams of Adderall. So normally I don't take Adderall on the weekends, but I wanted to do my taxes. So I'd already gathered all necessary documents. I'd already cataloged the amounts of these documents. So it took me about 70 minutes to prepare my, my taxes for my accountant. And uh, so I'm doing this stream now, what, uh, five hours on from five milligrams of Adderall. So normally I take 10 milligrams of Adderall every weekday, usually around 8 a.m. And then I tend to, I just want to work like straight through for the next five to six hours, right? When I'm, you know, when I'm at my cognitive height, I just want to work straight through. Oh, I also had one, one cup of coffee this morning. So that's what's fueling me. But I forgot to take Adderall on Wednesday. And my God, did I make so many mistakes. The gap between my inclinations and what I ended up saying and doing and emailing was very, very thin. I just blew it again and again and again. I misread situations. I, I misread things that were assigned to me and I, I couldn't be bothered to put the effort in to get the details right. Wednesday was an absolute disaster. Like so much of my life <laughs> prior to ADHD medication. My God, I noticed the difference of ADHD medication more when I don't take it. Uh, I didn't, didn't take it yesterday on Shabbos and I was just felt so scattered. I mean, getting on this medication has just dramatically improved the quality of my work, the quality of my life, the quality of my focus, uh, my ability to uh, put, put more space between my inclinations and what I end up saying and doing. So 
one way that I've tried to handle my chaotic impulses, and particularly as I get older and older, I do more of this. I love protocols, right? The more I can have a protocol for something, the more I can keep under control, you know, my wild anarchic, you know, animal side. So for example, if I don't want to leave the house without taking something with me, all right, I need to put that by my keys. So everything that I'm going to leave the house with, I need to put them all together, right? That maximizes my chances of, of not forgetting something. Uh, put reminders. I need to put, you know, as many reminders onto my phone as possible, onto my calendar as possible. And when I, I'm dealing with, with different situations, I need to develop protocols for how, how I react. So when I get up in the morning, I get up and I have a cold shower. If I didn't make that part of my protocol, right, if I had to struggle about whether or not to take a cold shower, I wouldn't take normally uh, you know, as many cold showers. I'd take the easy way out. My natural inclination is to do the easy thing, the lustful thing. I just want to travel the path of excess on, on the road to the destination of wisdom. But not exactly a, a winning formula for life. Look, why do I not normally take Adderall on weekends? If I had a guaranteed supply, all right, I, I'd take Adderall on, on weekends as well because it dramatically enhances the quality of my life, the quality of my decisions, the quality of my speech, all right, the quality of my social interactions, the quality of my relationship with myself. But I am so afraid of not having Adderall when it's an economic necessity for me that I be on Adderall that I, I usually don't take it on the weekend so that I can, you know, develop a, a reserve so that I know that it's there for me when it's an absolute economic necessity that I pay attention to details that uh, I think through everything that I'm going to say and do. So I'm trying to develop, develop uh, a supply because I, I lost half of my first month's supply of Adderall, either through my own carelessness or it, it was stolen. But yeah, Adderall helps. ADHD medication helps. If you got ADHD, right? You, most people absolutely need to be on top line stimulant medication, according to the ADHD experts that I've read and, and listened to. And all the other workarounds for dealing with ADHD are simply not going to get it done. And so I see people who are chronic slippers with sex addiction, dating addiction, uh, food addiction, with uh, under earning addiction, and I just suspect. I'm not a clinician. I just suspect that until they deal with their ADHD by getting on top-line medication, all right, they are not going to make significant progress in overcoming your addictions, all right? So 12-step programs are fantastic for developing a community and for developing spiritual solutions to spiritual problems, but spiritual solutions frequently will not deal adequately with physiological problems just as physiological solutions will frequently not be adequate to spiritual solutions. But uh, yeah, the older I get, the more protocols I want, the more habits that I want to develop so that when this happens, I react it in this way. So you know, there's A, the stimulus, and then you know, B, I, I've trained myself to react in a certain way because if I just you know, go along with my own basic impulses, it gets me into a great deal of trouble. I like uh, Michael Wolf. He's a writer mainly a magazine writer on the media. Then he's had a great deal of success writing books. So I like his various books on Fox News and on Donald Trump. 
Here he is talking to Charlie Rose. Uh, for the things that make his audience respond. He's, al he's always trying. It's almost like a comedy club in which he's trying out new lines all the time. Exactly. And he finds those and then he keeps coming back to them. So he, he is a he's a consummate performer. I mean, that's what he does. Um, that's what he does all of the time. You know, the campaign, the Trump campaign, um, you know, points out that, you know, within with almost no preparation, a day's notice, he can summon a live audience of 20, 30, 40,000 people. Um, you know, a, a, a Democrat would be, or any other politician, would be hard-pressed to summon 500 people. And for the very simple reason, you know, and you can understand this, they're boring, he is not. His track record since 2016 as a politician has not been good. I would sort of separate separate that that out um, and, and say that, that, I mean, because he's not a politician. So one thing I, I love about Michael Wolff is that he is about as agnostic on hero systems as you know, the, the major writers can, can get. So he doesn't tend to impose a, a moral hero system on the characters he talks about. Not leading a political party. I mean, he's not. His, his he owns a political party. He owns it, but it's that's that's subservient to him. He doesn't see himself as part of a political a political party, a political machine, a, a political enterprise. He sees only himself. So, um, so I, I love cold showers, but I, I want to be honest. There isn't strong evidence that they. You know, produce you know fantastic or, or good or solid or reparative physiological results. So it may be you know the the dopamine effect that I attribute to cold showers. You know, it may be there more in in my head than is really there. Right? I'm not going to claim there's strong strong academic evidence for you know, numerous and and deep benefits from you know immersing yourself in cold water. And certainly, if you do it irresponsibly, like Wim Hof. And the Wim Hof method has encouraged that many people have died from. You know that's an absolute disaster. So if it's stuff, something's recommended by Andrew Huberman, right at Stanford University, or Wim Hof, I'd be highly, highly skeptical. And the others, the others, you, you know, he regards they lose because because they're politicians. You know, they're not as good as he is in the in the, in the end. Real step down in quality on the Charlie Rose show, right? Ever since his big sex scandal and he's gone out on his own. The uh, tech quality of his shows has gone down. Um, as for whether he loses, well, we don't really know that. I mean, what what we know what we know is that he won once. On the second time, he came within forty four thousand votes of 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 winning. Wait a minute. Do you think there's any doubt as to whether Joe Biden won the election or no, not? No, 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 no. I mean, he 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 very clearly Joe Biden clearly won won the election and got many many more votes. But Trump almost won. Okay, comment in the chat. Cold shadows can uh, be invigorating and reduce the, the libido. Uh, two, two other tricks that I found reducing the libido. So, I mean, I try to stay busy during the day so I don't spend a lot of time in erotic daydreams. Then I try to keep, you know, audiobooks running all night to reduce my susceptibility to, to erotic uh, night dreams. But, uh, you know, getting up and relieving your bladder is is a great way I find to reduce, you know, the overwhelming power of lust, and also sometimes I just get up and and watch a sitcom. So I've been, I'm now I think on the tenth or eleventh season of the sitcom Frasier. So instead of lying in bed in in a state of uh, erotic euphoria, you know, recalling past triumphs, uh, I find it much healthier decision for me to you know, get up and watch some Frasier. Um, that's the kind of remarkable thing to be Donald Trump 
to be that kind of uh, polarizing figure and then to come within 44,000 votes of winning an electoral college victory. Well, how do you explain that? I, I don't, I can't explain oh, that. No, nobody can, nobody can explain that except that he has managed to unite this part of the country. Um, so you have to sort of go with, there are two countries and, um, and one is absolutely loyal to Donald Trump. Um, and it is a country that is geographically, um, exists geographically in a way to give them a, 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 a decided electoral college advantage so that he can become president. It is possible. We know it's possible because it's already happened. It almost happened a second time. Um, and it may happen a third time because of this remarkable loyalty that he is able to command. Um, and again, to see this in political terms, he doesn't win election, you know, his, his supporters don't win, all, all of these things is, um, is probably not the best way to look at this. It's probably going to give you a false sense of security. Um, you know, and, and it's certainly, I mean, certainly all, virtually all Republican politicians understand that because they've, they've realized if they want a career in Republican politics, they have to be Trumpers, even though virtually all of them um, think of him in, um, you know, in highly negative terms. Um, they don't like him. I mean, just, just, just simply that they don't like him because he is, um, um, you know, he's, he's not somebody, he's not somebody you can, you, it's, um, it's enjoyable to be with or to work with. Yet, yet recently, David Brooks writing in the New York Times, a columnist, Brett Stevens writing in the New York Times, a columnist, you know, bemoaned where he has taken the Republican Party. It's not the Republican Party they believe in. It's not the Republican Party that, that they, uh, and, and it's not the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, well, that Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, well, so those those guys are, don't have a party. Um, you know, I mean, the party has just gone on without them. This has happened sometimes in in, in history, um, and this is this is one of those times. The party has a mind of its own. It is now simply the party of Donald Trump. Absolutely, I mean, with it, no it, programs and no policies for the most part, just a personality. There it is, in a nutshell. That's true. That's absolutely true. And, you know, and but but, in, you know, instead of. I mean, the, the problem, the problem with many people in the media, the problem with many political reporters is um, um, is is seeing seeing that and um, and saying all the all enumerating all the reasons this is appalling in so many, so many ways and but yet being unable to understand that something transformational has happened here. What is that? Um, something clearly a very large number of people in the country want something out of their political leaders that has not been offered them before. And Donald Trump is getting closer to what that is than. Well, the TV comedy writer Rob Long made this terrific point uh, 20 years ago that elections for president are in part about who do we want to be the leading character in our national reality show. And in 2016, people chose Donald Trump. 2020, people were tired of Donald Trump, but uh, in 2024, you know, people may want to ride the, the Trump train once again to be the lead character in the national reality TV show. Many, many, many. He's making them believe he understands, at least, at a minimum. But what is it? Well, as I say, I think he gains those skills from being on reality television. Um, um, I mean, that's a hell of a formative experience for dealing with the American public. Um, but you know, you know, there's another. It's interesting thing to go to Trump rallies, and um, 
you know, and the 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 media, the New York Times, uh, always paints those rallies as 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 kind of um, dark, threatening. Um, 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 you know, something uh, there's something aberrant about them and warped. Um, the the curious thing is is when you're there among twenty thousand people, um, and you know, and even at that moment when Trump goes into his standard what what his campaign called the grievance section of his speeches, um, you know, telling people your lives are terrible, you have nothing, you'll get nothing, they want to take everything from you. Even at that, they're conspiring against you. All of that. Even at that point, what you sense when you're there is that everybody is having a great time. It's like a country fair. Um, it's like a it's like a rock and roll concert. Um, it's um, uh, you know they're they're there. I, I think that's a key point. People often choose religion. People choose a type of politics. People choose you know art. People choose friends, community hobbies, largely on the basis of how does it make them feel. And I think Tucker Carlson viewers, you know, Tucker Carlson fans love Tucker Carlson because of how he makes them feel. Right? Donald Trump fans, you know, love Donald Trump because of how he makes them feel. You know, people want to feel alive. People want to feel significant, and people want to feel a part of something bigger than themselves. And that's what uh, Donald Trump provides for fifty million of our fellow Americans. Okay, a journalist asks, New York Times here, how do you define Latino? And I just want to use this briefly to illuminate a larger point. So New York Times says, as the presidential election approaches, Latino land by Marie Arana explores the diverse politics and historical roots of Hispanic Americans. Well, Hispanic doesn't really have much meaning, all right? Uh, Mexican Americans don't have much in common with Cuban Americans. Right? Hispanic doesn't really mean much. Just like white doesn't really mean much to most people in the first world. Right? Most Americans do not identify primarily as white. They identify as American. And most Australians don't identify primarily as white. They identify by their nation. They identify as nationalist Australians, right? The English identify primarily as English, the French as French, the Germans as German, the Norwegians as Norwegian, all right? Nationalism is the most powerful force in politics. And we live in an age of nationalism. We've lived in an age of nationalism since the 18th century. And nationalism is far more important than civilizations, all right? Hispanic civilization, white civilization has virtually no meaning. Right? Very few people primarily identify as Hispanic. Right? They identify instead as Mexican, Nicaraguan, Guatemalan, Cuban, Brazilian, Argentinian. Right? They don't feel a great deal in common with other you know, Hispanics, just like most people don't feel a great, who are white don't feel a great deal in common with other whites. They feel something in common with other Americans, with other Australians. So we, we don't live in a time of civilizational battles, right? The, the late political scientist Samuel Huntington wrote a book what, about uh, the war of civilizations. But uh, civilizations, by and large, don't go to war. Civilizations, by and large, don't shape us, drive us, animate us, push you know, the news forward. Right? What, what pushes the, the news forward is overwhelmingly nationalism, not civilization, be it white civilization, Hispanic civilization. And... Uh, Another shocking development here in the news from the New York Times. Murder trial lays bare a hip-hop pioneer's double life. 
I hope you're sitting down. In the years before his death, the run DMC DJ Jam Master J secretly turned to the drug trade to keep providing financial support to relatives and friends. Who would have thought that this great musician would have uh, turned to the, the drug trade and then to have his, his, the life of this musical genius you know, ended way too soon by murder? I never would have expected that to happen to one of the, the great you know, rap DJs of our time. You're wondering what the heck's going on with Jordan Peterson? What's going on with Decoding the Gurus? Oh, let me tell you. He's on. just picked it up from Antifax, Twitter, and whatever. It's like a culture war thing, right? It's like a media kerfuffle that if I was in his shoes and I was totally focused on what generates more attention and more drama, etc. How can I project myself into the role of the a, a little bit like Brett there, David fighting Goliath, then, you know, this is a nice little opportunity. He's never one to turn down the chance to crusade. So this is Jordan jumping on a new crusade. And whether you're a fan or a critic, this is something that he does. Mm. He goes on tirades and these kind of crusades, which he regards as being because he's a very principled person. And, you know, if he won't stand up for things, bloody hell, who will, Matt? So you mentioned that, you know, it's not really a huge threat for him to have his license removed. And he does make that point. You know, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm not wrong about the damn tweets. You know, I might be wrong about how this is going to unfold. But even there... The worst thing they can do to me is take my license. Now, they're definitely planning to do that because the rule is I have to be educated by people of their choice at my expense for whatever length of time they deem suitable until, by their standards, I've learned whatever the hell lesson I'm supposed to learn. And I can't even imagine what that lesson would be. It's like, what, don't tweet? Don't speak? Don't think? Don't tell my clients the truth? So how, I don't know how to learn that lesson. I don't know how they're going to measure whether or not I've learned it. I don't know who they're going to get to measure it. I have no idea who they're going to get to teach me. I guess we're going to find out. I would like to find out. I'm very curious about that person. And uh, so I'm set up for failure. And, you know, my detractors will say, well, Dr. Peterson, you say yourself up for failure. You know, whatever. But um, I don't think I've set myself up for failure. I wouldn't say the evidence so far suggests that I have. There's quite a lot there. <laughs> the bit at the start where he mentions that the worst thing is them possibly taking his license and how that's not really bad anyway. And then he, Matt, they're going to put him on this training course and who knows when that can end or what it will entail. And like, then he lets his imagination run wild where it's like, what are they going to say? Like, don't speak, don't say anything, don't talk. And like, no, Jordan. They're going to tell you to stop tweeting like a demented Muppet. They're going <laughs> to tell you if you want to be, you know, a licensed psychologist, you can't just be running rampant, unleashing your id all over. Right. If you want the benefits that come with being a licensed psychologist, then there's a price to, to pay. All right. You can't just say anything you want online. I could not join the, the major Society of Alexander Technique Teachers, the American Society of Alexander Technique Teachers. Not only could I not join it because of the outlandish things I've said online, but an Alexander Technique teacher who wants to maintain his good status with the American Society of Alexander Technique teachers could not employ me. 
All right. They could not really publicly associate with me because I am not willing to confine what I say to what's in the best interest of the profession. So there are many benefits to being part of a profession, but it comes with a price. Right. You cannot speak. You cannot conduct yourself in a way that's against the best interests of your profession. Now, the best interests of your profession are generally those that will enhance the status, the prestige, the income of members of your profession. So there are going to be a lot of restrictions that come with speech. For example, I could not publicly criticize other Alexander Technique teachers if I wanted to be a you know, good member of the American Society of Alexander Technique teachers. So I've never tried to join any of the professional Alexander Technique societies, and I've lost clients because of that. I've had clients, and then they said, oh, are you a member of you know, a professional society of Alexander Technique teachers? And I've, I've said no. And so if you want to be a licensed clinical psychologist, there is a significant price to pay. You cannot just you know, tweet like a demand, demented madman, to use the words here of cultural anthropologist uh, Chris, Chris Kavanaugh. So I am a part of the Orthodox Jewish community. Right? There are restrictions in my freedom that, that come with that. Right? If you want to be married, if you want to maintain community, friends, be part of any sort of professional organization, right? you're going to have to accept a considerable reduction in freedom, or you can choose, as I often have, to forego certain professional organizational memberships to maximize my freedom of expression. The internet. That's what they're going to tell you. It's a very straightforward. Like It would be an absolutely bog-standard thing, but he seems to genuinely work himself up into this tizzy that he's going to be like, you know, clockwork orange, have his mm. eyes taped open for who knows five years, Matt, in a fucking Canadian Siberian yeah. style prison. Like a, a re-education camp. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he does tweet madly, regardless of what you think of Jordan Peterson, he does tweet in a pretty demented way. And, you know, I can understand that even a, a board that probably doesn't want anything to do with this, there are very strong free speech protections in north america and like you said it would be some sort of just by the numbers little thing look please please don't call someone a whatever a raging fat hag or something like that that so my father was a leading theologian in the seventh adventist church and he gave a controversial speech as part of the seventh adventist forum program and so forums were supposed to be a you know, free speech opportunity within the seventh adventist church but if you're going to be employed by any church or any organization, right? You cannot say things publicly that are going to damage or, or divide that organization, right? The First Amendment you know, does not protect you from your organization, your employer, uh, your church, right? Taking disciplinary action. And my, my father and supporters of my father, you know, have been arguing tendentiously this point for over 40 years that, hey, he said this in what's supposed to be a protected space where you're supposed to have protected, you know, uh, freedom of expression to explore controversial ideas. But uh, the world simply doesn't work that way. And I, I took that, that attitude for, for many years, for, what, nine years after uh, the Glacier View controversy in 1980 that saw my father have his Seventh-day Adventist ministerial credentials removed from him. And then when I complained about it to the late uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, a professor of musicology at UCLA, he made the point that every group has rules, right? Religions have rules. Churches have rules. Stamp clubs have rules. You violate the rules, then you're going to lose 
the benefits that come with that sort of group membership. That isn't appropriate yeah. for a thing. And and then he does that little voice, which is oh yeah, that was he was imagining some hypothetical critic detractor. Yeah, detractor. Yeah. But the words that he was putting into the detractor's voice there was not something that ever occurred to me. That's just stuff that would occur to Jordan, right? Well, no, the one about you know that these you've set yourself up for failure, right? Like <laughs> that, that, I mean. He is doing that. I would say that. I, mean, I would, probably wouldn't use that tone of voice, but like he's setting it up so that he cannot do the training course. He could have just went, because he's like, you know, who, who knows how long it could be. I can tell him it could probably be a maximum like eight weeks or, you know, a couple of months. Training courses don't tend to last indefinitely when they're a kind of punishment thing, right? So yeah, it, it would be a set amount of time and it would be, extremely boring probably but you know so by him setting it up that it's this big thing and that he's going to rage against it and that he's going to fight it at every step of the way he is essentially making it so it's almost impossible Mm. for him to comply with some bog standard training course because he's going to make it into Mm. a huge deal no matter what it is (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. It's clearly like a rehash of the original thing that helped propel him to fame, where he took his principled stand against, what was it? C-16. C-16. Bill C-16. Yeah, and whether he's right or wrong, like whatever you think of that issue, he was definitely beating it up in order to make it a drama with him at the center of it. This seems to be now his modus operandi. Yes, let's let's hear him go on a little bit more about... um, potential consequences that could happen from losing his license. Now, what's the consequence of me losing my license? Well, it's annoying, you know, because those are hard licenses to get, and I worked very hard to earn and deserve that license and to maintain it, and also very hard at being a good therapist, which I was. There were no complaints taken about against me by anyone until I became known in the public sphere, you know, so that's a good thing to consider. Um, And I'm not that happy about the prospect of the woke Beatles that you described having their way with my professional credentials. It annoys me deeply. Now, on the other hand, I'm not dependent on that license anymore. I have other tricks up my sleeve, so to speak, anyways. And at some point, I'm going to determine that being a member of their pathetic little incestuous, ideologically addled, resentment-ridden, bureaucratic, pea-brained, micro-souled club is not worth the effort. And I suppose we're probably there already, but I have something to do publicly, you know, in my delusion. So I guess he's acknowledging that they're probably, he's probably going to lose this fight against Goliath, but, you know, he doesn't care. He says tricks up his sleeve. What he means is very large, significant sources of income such that it really doesn't matter very much whether he practices or not. Yeah, though, it does strike me as a something of an internal battle that you can hear, like, bits of it flashing up there. Because at the start, you know, he's like, one of these things that Jordan likes to do is pose himself hypothetical questions and then answer them himself, right? And he's like, so what are the consequences? Well, it's annoying, you know, and then he's saying, and these licenses are hard and I worked hard to get it and I'm a good, I was a good therapist and blah, blah, blah. And that annoys me. Then though, he kind of shifts to, and then anyway, I've got all the tricks and do I want to be a member of your little 
pathetic, incestuous, ideologically adult, bureaucratic, pea-brained, micro-soul club. Like, this is him into the Jordan Peterson, the... That, that's how I've often reacted to my setbacks. I'll, I'll offer a little bit of contrition, a little bit of honesty, and m- many people will resonate w- with that, all right? When I've been honest, authentic, realistic, all right, people have, have resonated with that. But then when I slip into self-justification and vitriol against um, people who, who have distanced themselves from me, right, almost everyone has been turned off when I... And I've exhibited these Jordan Peterson-like symptoms in the past. Polemicist, you know, the pundit character. This would be an example. If you were a professional of some variety and your licensing board was taking disciplinary action against you and you went on a public broadcast and referred to the members of the board as pathetic, incestuous, ideologically addled, resentment-ridden, bureaucratic, pea-brained, micro-sold individuals. That wouldn't show that you are a particularly responsible member of the community, right? Yeah, good uh, good point there from Decoding the Gurus. That will do it for me. Take care. Maybe I'll see you in another three weeks. Bye-bye. Wishing you, what, what is it, Fraser, Dr. Fraser Crane always wishes you, uh, goodbye and good mental health.